Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Welcome! To Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part two of Openers, where we curate a mixtape featuring some of the greatest opening tracks to appear on an album. Welcome back. Hello. Welcome back to part two. Boy, that was a, quite an epic episode last week. We got to talk about some really, really good music on some really, really good records Yeah. with some really, really good stories. Oh, it's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, and... Um this week, uh, more of the same. Um, it really is. It is just an incredible collection of music. Um, I don't know if we'll ever do a closers. I'm, I've, I've toyed with the idea, but I, I love this theme, especially returning for the new season, You know, opening the season. It, yep. uh, to me, it just, I don't know. Everything just feels right, and the music is extraordinary. So hopefully the listeners are enjoying part one and... and are back for for more this week, and we warned them that this would would also be somewhat uh, lengthy. So we probably should just hit the ground running. We probably should. Yeah, this one is it's going to be longer, at least on my end. Uh, there are a few songs that I take time to actually explain because I, I feel like too many people probably do not understand them, uh, or I, I know I certainly didn't upon first listen. So hopefully it's not wasted time. I don't mean to waste anyone's time, but yeah, I'm not going to go long on a couple of these. So. Well, you go first. Well, week two. First pick. All right. So uh, I'm. We talked last week. Our opener was uh, "Funeral for a Friend" and "Love Lies Bleeding," and the song I've chosen is very similar in construction, in the sense that we have two um, or three separate musical elements that could be their own songs had they been developed, uh, but it were stitched together uh, to make one uh, song with with movements, uh, almost classical in that way. And I'm talking about "Band on the Run." by Wings from 1974, starting off the album, Band on the Run.
And this is one that we mentioned last week that we would be repeating a few. Um, this is one I believe we used on the criminal episode way back. Was that season one, season two? Uh, season three. Criminal. Was it really? Yeah. Okay. Criminal was last year. All right. Yeah. Well, it wasn't that long ago. So I'm probably, um, you know, retreading some some ground here with the, with uh, some of this information. But uh, just if you go back to, to Abbey Road, right, the, the second half of, of Abbey Road, when the Beatles were all kind of going their separate ways and they had little snippets of songs and things that were not developed and they couldn't get everybody in the studio together and, you know, it was a big mess. And that's when George Martin famously found a way to take these little snippets of songs and stitch them together and, you know, made the talk about uh, epic closers. That would be one that I would probably choose that whole suite of, of songs that were kind of made into one um, uh, one song at, at the second side of, of Abbey Road. And so I think McCartney turned, took some lessons from this. And, and we see that in some of his solo music. For the first time, we see it with uh, Uncle uh, Albert and uh, Admiral Halsey where he takes some of these different movements and he creates a song. But he really, really kind of knocks it out of the park here with, with Band on the Run. Uh, inspiration came, uh, from the song came from a variety of places, including uh, tensions between McCartney and the other ex-Beatles, which, of course, we all know about, that uh, followed the band's breakup. It also reflects how McCartney felt facing criminal charges for pot possession at the time. Yeah. Remember that whole thing? Oh, yeah. Um, and then George Harrison apparently was the inspiration behind the line, If We Ever Get Out of Here. Uh, after he voiced a sentiment during a, uh, a contentious business meeting in regards to their company, Apple. And so, yeah, a lot of things are probably going on in McCartney's mind at the time uh, that he's writing this. And so it's very, very reflective of the post-Beatles time and the, the tensions that existed. So, you know, how epic is this song? Well, I'll, here's one stat for you. It, it features a 60-person orchestra for about a five-second... <laughs> Um, snippet of song you know right before he launches into the third movement um, there's that orchestral piece and so yeah he brought in 60 professional symphonic uh, musicians to record that little bit so he's not thinking small on this record not at all not at all Um, whereas in like McCartney which was the I believe the first solo album um, that McCartney wrote he pretty much produced himself and it's pretty stripped down and he played all the instruments Uh, this one um, he goes for the gusto the um the, the experimental structure is some that some listeners maybe don't even re- realize because the parts are so melodic, and that's 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 McCartney's strength, right? Was melody. Um, sometimes he's criticized for that. You know, so maybe he's too too show tuney in times like your mother should know, which I love that song, you know. But that's just that's that's Broadway, one hundred percent, yeah. And and so he, he he's able to find that melody uh, time and time again, and he really takes this progressive format, this progressive structure. But it's it's melody, and so people don't think of it as progressive music. Um, and I'm not saying it's progressive music per se, but it does have that type of, of format where it goes in different directions, different time signatures, different rhythms, uh, and different melodies all within one song. Uh, the, uh, the the single was radio friendly. Uh, they did edit it down uh, to the, the, it was the album version is 509, and then the edit was was 350. So they did take a few uh, few verses out of the song. But it hit number one on Billboard. I believe it was his first number one. May have been his first number one solo slash wings. Right? Was it? Might have been. I had to verify that, but huh. it did definitely go to number one. Well, yeah. No, I know it went to number one. I was right. just wondering if, like, my love or, well, no, my love would have been. Maybe I'm amazed. Maybe I'm amazed, or I don't know. Because um, the Ram album, I think, came before that, and that had some some right, some, yeah, 
some good tunes on it too. But um, yeah, and um, I probably talked about it last time when they went. I think they went uh, to did they go to Ethiopia or is Ethiopia in my mind because I talked last week about Bono? But I think it was they went somewhere in Africa to record this album, and all of their their demos were stolen. Uh, they had all these songs demoed and ready to record, and gone gone and, and a lot of the stuff wasn't written down lyrics weren't written down McCartney had kind of just written them as he sang them and so um, believe it or not he was able to remember most of them um, and, and write them back down again so hmm. who knows what was lost <laughs> that happened to Green Day Green Day um, had one of their demo albums stolen and uh, they, kind of, they kind of said you know it wasn't our best work anyway and that's when they produced American Idiot so maybe it's a good thing sometimes when you're out of your comfort zone and you kind of had to find your way back but yeah I mean I don't want to spend too much time because we already talked about this song but I think to say this one doesn't belong right in the canon of great openers would be a misnomer because this song is you know a casual fan could even mistake in it for the Beatles right it's still very much in that Beatles oh yeah not not only just in a McCartney vibe but in a Beatles McCartney vibe um, that, that's about it you have anything to add on that one um not really. No, I mean, you you touched on everything I would I would say. I mean, Band on the Run is an album. Uh, we talked last week about rumors. I, I think we, we both agree it's the greatest pop album uh, ever released. Band on the Run is a clear number two for me. I mean, every track is just it's pure pop perfection. I, I just I, I love love McCartney and you know it it's I, it, it's it's a classic. You know? Okay, I'm looking up right now. McCartney's first number. Well, yeah, of course I want to hold your hand. I meant part, McCartney solo. <laughs> um, oh, Uncle Albert to Admiral Halsey. I just mentioned that. That was the first that number was, one song. That was the first. Okay. Yep, that was from Ram. Right. Ram's a great album too. Another day. Another day's on there as well. Good album. Okay. Yeah. No, that's huh. that's Band on the Run. You know, it's funny. I, I always liked Band on the Run, but sometimes you'll take a song and 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 put it in a different context, and then that song becomes even more meaningful. And one of my favorite movies of the last 20 years, 10 years, is Boyhood. Oh, um, yeah. Richard Linklater. And I love the scene when he's trying to teach his son about the Beatles and the post-Beatles. And he talks about how you could, I think, in fact, he makes a, I think he makes a mixtape for his son of uh, the album that the Beatles would have made had they stayed together post-1970. Right. So he takes the different solo hits from the different um, members and kind of puts them on, on one mixtape. And he starts it with Band on the Run. And they're driving down the highway, and that opening, and you see father and son sharing a musical moment with this song playing. And all of a sudden, that song just became another McCartney song that I liked to something on a completely different level that I, I see now, a completely different level. So I had to include it. No. Yeah. It definitely belongs there, and I'm so so happy that you included it. I, I, it, it wouldn't be a complete mixtape without it. So, and I feel that's true for the other songs that we're about to repeat, um, including my very next selection. This one actually was used in season one for the Fourth of July, for Independence Day. Oh, okay. Uh, it is American Pie by Don McLean. A long, long time ago. I can still remember how that music used to make me smile 
And I knew if I had my chance That I could make those people dance And maybe they'd be happy for a while But February made me shiver With every paper I'd deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried When I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside The day the music died So bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee But the levee was dry And them good old boys Were drinking whiskey and rye Singing this'll be the day that I die This'll be the day that I This is the longest, the longest song to ever hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Over eight minutes long. Um, and, and, and that, yeah, that, that wasn't cut down. They, no, there was they, no, no, they yeah. did not cut it. Yeah. That was 1970, is that right? 1971, yeah. yeah. Um, and it still holds the record. I doubt there will ever be a song longer that, that will chart and, and peak at the, the number one spot. You know, in, in American popular music, very few songwriters have attempted to write epics and, and really who can blame them I mean they're busy enough just trying to write a good song you know stretching the form itself that's that's something that's rarely tried you know mostly the mission becomes about working within the form and, and the challenge is just to discover something new within its limited space um, which is no small feat I mean there's so many disparate uh, aspects to songwriting that you had to master before gaining the know-how power and ability to, to write any song well so it makes perfect sense even those undisputed geniuses of song and we named a lot of them last week from Gershwin to, to Guthrie to Hank Williams to Dylan the Beatles Paul Simon Bruce Springsteen and beyond uh, all of them had to master the form itself before doing their greatest work but none of them invented a new form which is only one reason why Don McLean's American Pie remains such a remarkable song um, I mean, Bob Dylan had written multiverse songs that blew listeners' minds with expansive poetic lyrics before this. I mean, he picked up old forms common in folk music, both Irish and American, which in turn echoed traditions of romantic poetry. He had the long, rhymed epics that, that tell compelling, often dark, spiritual, mysterious narratives, which gave momentum and meter, you know, with slowly unfolding force. And, and one may argue that Springsteen did the same, especially in the first two albums. Um... You know, which is why he was both flattered and plagued by the media's insistence that he was the next Bob Dylan. But but neither Dylan nor Springsteen ever attempted anything so bold as to describe the rise and fall of rock and roll music in an infectious and expansive radio-friendly pop song. Yeah. And it's like... <laughs> well said. Yeah, it, it just, you know, Don McLean. And, and Don McLean, I mean, he, he was not a one-hit wonder. He, I mean, he had other songs that charted, but everybody... Today, he's known for American Pie. And I don't... I'd be... Willing to bet that most people could not name Vincent. Vincent would be yeah. That's, though, on, that's on same album. Yacht Rock. No, but I'm saying oh. that that's on like oh, either yacht, on not Yacht Rock. Rock um, uh, there's another satellite, uh, the bridge that we listen to a lot. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, which is kind of like softer classic rock. Okay. And yeah, they play. Uh, yeah, Vince, Vincent. Vincent charted Dreidel. 
is another one which I, I've always loved the song Dredo. It has nothing whatsoever to do with Hanukkah, but you know they he uses the uses our little toy nonetheless for for the title of the song. Um, but yeah, most people when when really pressed would name American Pie, and I don't even know that a lot of today um, certainly millennials and Gen Z they know American Pie. I mean, in my experience, everybody knows American Pie, but yeah. but even Gen Xers uh, most. I don't think I don't know that a lot of people can name the artist. No, know? probably not. So I mean, Don McLean. I, I want to give him credit before I before I go further. I mean, he he was just incredibly daring. I mean, American Pie is his magnum opus. You know, I, without question, it stretched what was considered a reasonable time limit for a radio single from the accepted three minutes to over twice that, and also accepted limits of content that. You know, the song struck a chord which continues to resound to this day. The, the single was like a side A, side B, too, yeah, right? You had, yeah. to, you had to flip it over. Yeah, you had to flip it over. Um, but it was just, it, there was no side B. Ted, I mean, it was just one, you know. One uh, Ray piece. Charles um, did that with... Um, uh, what I Say. What I Say, right, yeah, right. Yeah, he did it as well. Um, so, American Pie, it went to number one in America. It stayed there for four weeks. And it did the same around the world. Um, when the Recording Industry uh, of Association of America assembled their Songs of the Century project of listing the most important songs of the 20th century, American Pie was number five on, on that list. Um, McLean gets credit for coining the phrase "the day the music died," I and mean, that that was you know that that's all him, and he uses it to paint the scene in its aftermath of a tragedy that was made mythic by its compounded horror and impact on the country and its popular music. It was the triple death. I think sometimes people forget there were three artists, um, Buddy Holly being most important, you know, musically. Richie Valens, who is an up-and-coming artist. He likely would have had a great, legendary career. And also, you had uh, J.P. Richardson, better known as the Big Bopper, who was largely going to be a one-hit wonder. Chantelle Lace was about all he was going to be known for. But nonetheless, those three, as well as... Uh, Oh, there, there, there were, I'm trying to think, there were members of, um, I think it was Richie Valens' band, uh, one or two members, that background artists that were, well, that were also there. Buddy Holly being one of the first to write, write you know, produce, record, all, the, the whole shebang, yeah, right? exactly. Kind of one of the, the earliest singer-songwriters of the rock generation. You can only imagine what he would have been able to do oh. had he survived. Going into the '60s, oh, he would have he would have rivaled Dylan, yeah, yeah, without question. Um, and he would probably still have been active through the '70s and into the '80s. He right. would have been another one of those artists that just he had he had things to say. Yes, he know? did. So, yeah, so you know, this song it, it's not only about the history of rock and roll, the rise and fall of rock and roll. It's also about the land where that music was born. Which is why I made it made use of it for the Fourth of July episode. Mm -hmm. But rock and roll, you know, it, it was the music of youth in a young country, and, and it was the first one before all others um, to, you know, our country. The it was the first one before all other others to to leave the planet and touch the moon, and then return. This song came less than two years after the moon landing, and and. You know, the world was changing profoundly then in ways both wonderful and worrisome. And rock and roll was its soundtrack. It was it was an electric and authentic, if often enigmatic, music for a generation lost in space, which is actually a, a line from, from the song. 
The song is filled to overcapacity with references to the momentous musicians who delivered this mystic music. I mean, you have all of the musical events of our time, and then it resonated precisely because it celebrated and elaborated on these touchstones. Uh, it sang of a generation united and empowered by a new religion, one based on youth, as well as spiritual spirituality and, and sacred song, rock and roll. But it also reflected in each verse and the chorus the dark side of this thing, revolving around the heartbreak of losing our young heroes, right? While their songs are, are on our lips and our hearts and our radios, it predated the deep sorrow that was to come of losing so many more that we loved. Morrison, Joplin, Hendrix, you know, th- all the way through to, to Cobain and, and Amy Winehouse, and, and the list continues to grow. The darkness came into rock and roll early and without brutal force. I mean, in this song, there's Altamont, where the Stones made the terrible mistake of trusting Hell's Angels to do their security. Uh, it resulted in the stabbing death of Meredith Hunter uh, right there in the audience. Then there was Manson, who's in the song, an aspirant rock and roll songwriter himself gone crazy on Beatles songs that he twisted and turned into a murder spree. Uh, McLean uses religious terms throughout the song as well, with ease. Um, and as, as it was already there in a big way, as in the name Hell's Angels, all emanated from the sacred store, another line from the song of rock and roll, but made this sacred force into something entirely unholy. And as the song progresses, the darkness takes over. Satan is laughing with delight as the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost leave town forever in this song. So, in almost every verse, he delivers the poetry and power of rock and roll, as well as the flip side, the obsessional danger inherent in that poetic power, when in the wrong hands or in the wrong mind. And he took on a new aspect of modern pop music, which is that these songs fill with often surreal and drug-inspired imagery, while benign in, in intention were often in, easily misinterpreted as galvanic prophecies of impending disaster needing some action. But here's the thing, none of it, none of it would have mattered if not for a key ingredient that came straight from the heart of, of Don McLean as a gifted songwriter, he created a great melody. Yeah. You know, with words like these and, and so many of them, it's easy to understand why it's the lyric which gets the most attention. But that melody on the chorus of this complex song is beautifully simple and sweet. It's a folk song. It's a sing-along tune without which the, the entire enterprise might never have been noticed. And yet there's still more. Uh, this songwriting tour de force was remarkable. I mean, it transforms this sprawling story into a modern pop song, a radio hit, which is a whole other achievement and perhaps one you know, more unlikely than anything uh, when it comes to the writing of the song. But American Pie, it remains a fun puzzle for rock and rollers. It, it just does, especially stoned ones. <laughs> <laughs> to, to decipher, I mean... Since it first emerged, people have been hungry to understand each line, and McLean will forever be beseeched with questions about its meaning. You know, he he remains resistant wisely in, in cracking its codes, and instead offers this coy response about its meaning. He t- he tells people all the time, "It means I don't ever have to work again if I don't want to." <laughs> so, and he said it many times in interviews. So, dignified silence is what I call it. I. He, it it really is the best answer because he prefers to leave listeners on their own to decipher his words. Um, I, I could go through line by line. We've done this before, not on the podcast, but you and I used to sit there and play with, with the lyrics and whatnot for, for we years. We wrote a whole spread for our student newspaper in high school about did, it, if I remember yeah, correctly. We did, yeah. And it, it's one that actually got attention. I, there were kids from other schools that I had never met who came up to me and asked if, if you know, I was one of the, the writers of this American Pie uh, 
article that we wrote. Um, it is just, it is, I think, lyrically, it's still to this day is my favorite song. It just is. Musically, well, there, there are hundreds of songs that you know are far more impressive, but lyrically, there's nothing better than American Pie. And the fact that everything, an entire generation is right there in the lyrics and that he allows you to toy with it and find the meaning that, that's most personally relevant and to try and solve these puzzles. There, everything about this song just makes it, for me, unrivaled. I mean, there's no other song that can compare. Does it surprise you that he kind of found lightning in a bottle and wasn't able to really repeat that ever again? No. I, I think, well, it's more surprising that he was able to do it in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a song that by all... I mean, conventional wisdom would say that this could not be done. It certainly could not reach number one at over eight minutes long. It certainly could not become a song that would be covered by more than a hundred different artists. None of them covered it well, I might add. I mean, there are... I don't think I've ever heard a cover version uh, of this song. Everyone, well, no, Madonna did one. Yeah, I was going to say everyone... That's the only one I've that's heard. That's the only one. Everyone from the Brady Bunch to Madonna has covered this song. The whole song, or did they just do... Selections. Everyone okay. that's done it yeah, has yeah. done selections of it. Um, but it, it really is just... I, I don't know. I, to me, it's just incredible. And while the, the album that it comes from may not be as impressive as influential as inspiring as a lot of the other albums on the list uh, it's still it, it had three singles uh, that reached top 20 and it really you know for for at least a year maybe two don mcclain was on everyone's lips i mean he was he was the next bob dylan <laughs> you know um so yeah he he faded um he did catch lightning in a bottle as you say he had his 15 minutes and then don mcclain just faded unfortunately into obscurity but this song to me he became a country artist right yeah he did yeah, yeah. yeah. um and i don't know his I, shamefully i don't know any of his country music i just it's mm-hmm. not my genre but um yeah I, there's there will never be another american pie so i, I apologize for going along on it no but. no it's good I, I distinctly remember a time i think uh, our group of friends we were thrown out of denny's one time for singing the song at the Wait. top of our lungs yeah it, like, it, like it, looking back like how rude was that but that was such a cool Act of rebellion. It really was. It was also it was also two in the morning, so I don't. That's think true. Anybody in the restaurant really did not care. <laughs> we were they were all stoned or drunk or you know um, traveling cross country at that hour. Or so, um, but yeah, I feel like we got kicked out of Denny's a lot. <laughs> Here's the thing: Since people do that kind of stuff now for TikTok views. We just did it for our own entertainment. Oh, yeah. We didn't yeah. do it for views. It was pure for us, man. Can you imagine if we would have had TikTok and been able to oh. record some of our antics back then? We might have become celebrities. <laughs> you know? Possibly. Anyway, that's my my first selection for, for side B. I've got to give you American Pie, and I am repeating it because it's been used once before. Well, that, so. that's a hard one to follow because that's such an epic song, so... And, and and this next one, you, you know, a lot of people may not, well, it's definitely not epic in the sense of American Pie, um, but it is definitely a great opener. And um, one of the songs that I believe in the late 80s that really helped usher in the alternative movement. You were done, right? Yeah. I didn't just, okay. Yep. No, I'm done. And by the way, it was Nigeria. I looked it up when you were speaking. Nigeria is where they recorded Band on the Run, not okay. Ethiopia. I knew it was in Africa somewhere. That's where they got their stuff stolen. So anyway, going back, um, I'm gonna I'm bringing up the Cure. I, I I love the Cure. It's one of my favorite bands. And again, when I'm in the mindset of picking songs that introduced a, a record, 
and just really kind of hit the ground running uh, in between days from their 1985 album Head on the Door. Discovered the Cure in middle school, and I wore out my copy, my cassette of the Head on the Door. Um, the Cure is another band that just went through a great evolution of style. They started out wanting to be a punk band, and then they kind of got into this what's now called goth. They kind of created that genre, um, which was a more progressive, very dark, um, but also electric and guitar. They're very much a guitar band, even though they did use keyboards prominently as well. And then the band went into kind of dance electric pop. Uh, and this is all within a matter of like five years, by the way. And then finally, they decided, you know what, we can kind of throw all these elements together. And then the band went through different incarnations. At one point during the, the, the dance pop phase, it was right after all of the really dark stuff. There's an album called Pornography, which is a masterpiece, uh, but it's really, really dark. And a lot of the members were going through substance abuse issues and depression, and it all makes sense, right? So the band breaks up after pornography, which I believe was 1982. And then somebody, you know, Robert Smith was playing with um, Susie and the Banshees for, for a couple albums and touring with them and kind of doing his own thing. And somebody challenged him and said, you know what, I bet you can't write a pop song, you know, and, and so he and uh, and and, and uh, Lowell Tolhurst got together, just the two of them. So the band actually went down to just two people, and they created uh, songs like The Walk and Let's Go to Bed, which was an MTV staple. But then, because of the success of that, they said, all right, well, let's get the band back together again. So they made a new um, incarnation of The Cure with some older members and, and some newer members. And that's this is really where I think they hit their stride as a band, as a pop band at least. Because The Head on the Door really has elements of, of the past evolution with also hints as to what's to come. And so In Between Days kicks off with this almost one minute long instrumental intro, which is another reason why it's such a great, right? We've talked about this already. Some of these great intro songs start off with an extended instrumental um, uh, portion to kind of get us into the record. And again, for this being a pop song, and this is very much a pop song, In Between Days is not in any way considered progressive. It's, it's like a three or four minute pop song. But the fact that it begins with almost a minute of just instrumental instrumentation kind of sets it apart from other pop songs. Uh, it has a really, really bouncy rhythm, a catchy melody. Um, 
and, and but at the time it was a little more esoteric than other pop songs at the time. Like they just hadn't broken through yet. Um, that would of course happen later on with just like Heaven and Friday I'm in Love and those types of songs. But this this song is definitely the precursor of, of that pop element to The Cure as they moved along in their career. Um, I'm shocked that the, the single only cracked the Billboard uh, Hot 100, went to number 99. I don't know of any other songs that just went to 99 and fell. Yeah, that's pretty... Uh... But they, but they did they, they 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 cracked it. But again, you can you can draw a through line between in between days and then just like heaven and then Friday I'm in love and you really hear that pop sensibility and it's it's hard to imagine that the same guy that wrote some of the dirges on pornography and 17 seconds and faith and some of those early records uh, was able to pull out this just completely 180 uh, musically and and still provide some great alternative pop music of the time. The video was also well made. Um, if you haven't seen the video, um, it, they kind of went guerrilla style in the sense of, you know, this is in an age in the 80s when you didn't have drones and you didn't have all sorts of different camera equipment and jibs like we have today. And so the director, Tim Pope, literally took a camera and he tied a rope around it and started swinging it around. <laughs> and and, and huh. granted, it has a really cool effect in the video, but on the very first take, they mismeasured Oh no! And and Roberts, it missed Roberts' head by about an inch. It was so close to the point where he walked off the set and he's like, "Yeah, I'm not doing this," and they had to calm him down. And then they proved to him that they they they, they strung it up a little bit uh, higher this time so it wouldn't kill him. And it does. It's a really cool effect. In fact, there are times when when Robert Smith catches the camera in midair and then sings into it and then pushes it back off again and it continues to kind of. Um, swing through. Uh, Pope also um, added a, a camera. This is way before GoPros, right? Adds a camera to um, one of the, the guitars. I think it was um, um, Pearl Thompson's guitar. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, you see different perspectives of, of the band than you would normally in, in a video. Um, I think quite quite um, groundbreaking. Um, the record, like I said, very diverse. The tracks explore other styles. Um, but this track just is a perfect way to break into it. In fact, I um, I remember I used to do community theater plays when I was a teenager, and uh, our director was pretty progressive. Instead of doing all the cutesy little kid plays that were very common at the time, um, there were playwrights that were writing plays that were more along the line of, of The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink and, and, and explored different issues about teenagers. I issues that today, I mean, this was like 30 years ago, but today people would be trying to ban them right by saying oh, well, yeah by saying that but but they were they were i remember when my parents um came to the one show we did um i forget i think it was called voices from the high school and it was a set of, of smaller vignettes it was about 15 or 16 like two three minute little little vignettes about teenage life um and my parents didn't want to like insult me because they thought the show was good but i think they were taken aback by how raw it was and and how it really cut to the issue of a lot of these issues. It didn't didn't play around, right? And so the very end of the of the play, um, there's a dance number where all of the cast comes out and, and they basically dance. Um, not not even in a real concrete way like a John Hughes movie where the where the dance had any sort of point. It was just a matter of, hey, you've seen all these different characters and all these different walks of life dealing with these different issues, and now we're going to bring them out, and they're just going to dance as teenagers. They're just going to be together in one room dancing. And so the director said, what what song should we use here? And he asked for suggestions. I remember one of um, my castmates um, wanted to use Let's Go Crazy by Prince, which would have been a good good selection. Right. But then I thought, what the heck? And I, I submitted In Between Days by The Cure, and that's the one he, he selected. And it was just I just remember... To this day, I was probably like 13 or, or 14, but I just remember 
that the little little drum fill starts out the song and it goes into the bouncy um, acoustic guitar and everybody just runs out on stage and, and begins to dance to this and it was just so cool because it was a song that really nobody else knew but it fit perfectly and uh, that's why I chose it today that's one of the reasons why I chose it today well great great choice um, The Cure is another band that I came to very late I um, you introduced them to me I really didn't give them a fair fair listen it, it's only been the last maybe 10 years that I've come to really, really appreciate The Cure. And I, I still don't know a lot of their catalog, you know, uh, their discography. Um, the later stuff I know better than, you know, their early work. But I tell you what, they, they, everything that I've heard by them, such such admiration and respect for their music now. I really wish that I had been more open-minded early on when you really started to, to encourage me to listen to them because... They're, they're fantastic. Well, it's funny. I, I did uh, dinner with my friend uh, Rick the other day, and, and he was kind of the same way, I think, um, in the 80s, where he kind of saw The Cure as just another keyboard band. Mm-hmm. Uh, think Depeche Mode before they started adding guitars, you know? Right. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and and he's a guitar player, and so I think, you know, obviously he's evolved now in his, in his, his taste for things at the time he probably unfairly dismissed, right? And that was the discussion. He said, boy, I, I just if I would have known how much of a guitar band The Cure really was... He goes, I would have, that would have been totally my wheelhouse back then. Uh, but he goes, for, for some reason, I just kind of lumped him into these you know, keyboard bands um, that just went out and programmed everything and didn't actually play their instruments. And he's like, man, I was, I was so wrong because they are such yeah. a guitar band. And then Depeche Mode turned into a guitar band. New Order uh, yeah. is a guitar band. Yeah. Um, now Pet Shop Boys more on the side of the electronic right. keyboard. But, yeah. um, but there is a fine distinction between those and they all kind of get lumped together. Yeah, no, I'm right there with Rick. I, I kind of lumped them in, in, in in much the same way. Plus the whole, I, goth just felt, I, I don't know. I, I, I could, I still don't find an emotional connection to, to the goth you know, movement of, of the late 80s going into the 90s or the emo, you know, that, that it has since evolved into. Um, so I, I think that kind of turned me off as well. Because you like the Smiths, though. Oh, no. Again, I, very good, much guitar band. I do love band. the Smiths, yeah. The, in fact, I do love the Smiths. very few keyboards in the Smiths, but they still sound like a, like a, a goth yeah. emo. I'm not saying they're goth, but it's that sound. Yeah, they have that sound, but they are... They're, they're very poppy. But. They're very... And I think that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm... I'm I don't know. I, I'm not much of a pop fan. I, I, I do lean toward rock, and then secondary would be blues and jazz for me and soul. But um, I don't. Know. There's something about the Smiths, though, that there's such there's such a play with words. And, sure, you yeah. know, and and Morrissey, despite you know the the political controversies you know, yeah, 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 of, yeah. of recent uh, <laughs> days. Well, I, the Smiths were. I mean. There's so much humor, yes, and especially dark, dry, biting, dark, humor. biting humor. Yeah, <laughs> that I mean, I was just—it was the poetry for, yes, for yes, the yes, Smiths yes. that drew me in. Yeah, because on first listen, you played you played the Queen is Dead, you know, through, and I was hooked. I mean, the Smiths were very accessible to me. Yeah, and that album's a great example because you have these real poppy songs like "The Boy with the Thorn in His Side," and right. uh, but then you go into like "I Know It's Over." Oh yeah, and that's yeah. as goth as you get, really. I mean, you talk about the the, the elements of yeah. goth music. True, but but I was going through a bad breakup, and that was the first song you played for me by the Smiths, and I was like, <laughs> "Bring it, bring it on!" <laughs> you know, I'm I'm I am a I'm I'm a convert. Just bring it on. So no, I this 
this myths were more accessible to me in a way that the, the cure wasn't at the right. time. Sure. Um, but no, since then, I mean, it's I've become a, I've become quite a fan. I, I still don't know a lot of the work, but well, you know me, I'll, I'll make another compilation I know for you, you if you I ever know want. You know. Absolutely, <laughs> that's why we do what we do here on the podcast. Okay, um, are, are you done? Yeah, I'm finished. Yeah. All right. Well, my my second is not going to go quite as long. Um, this one comes from 1969. Um, Still Gen X, although we're getting closer to the boomers uh, as we, you know, drop to the 60s. It actually hit number 15 on, the, on, on Billboard. It is by David Bowie, and it is a song titled Space Oddity. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Commencing countdown engines on. Check ignition and may God's love be with you. Now, Bowie wrote this after seeing the 1968 Stanley Kubrick film, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And Space Oddity is a play on the phrase Space Odyssey, although the title does not appear in the lyrics. Uh, The song tells the story of Major Tom, a a fictional astronaut who cuts off communication with Earth and floats into space. In, In a 2003 interview with Performing Songwriter magazine, Bowie explained that in England it was always presumed that it was written about the space landing because it kind of came to prominence about the same time. but it, A it, generation it, lost in space. Exactly, yeah. yeah. He said, but it absolutely was not about the space landing. He said, it was written because of going to see the film 2001, which I found amazing. I was out of my gourd anyway. I was very stoned when I went which to see it. Which is the proper way to watch the movie exactly. for the first time. It's really the only, <laughs> the only way to watch the movie anytime. Uh, so he... Uh, he said he went to see it several times and it was really a revelation to him. He said it got the song flowing. He said it was picked up by the British television. So the BBC kind of latched on to Space Oddity. And they used it as background music for the landing itself. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. And he said he is sure they really were not listening to the lyrics at all. Right. Of course not. <laughs> because he said it, it uh, was not a pleasant thing to juxtapose against a moon landing. Uh, because if you know the song... Um, basically, Major Tom, either one of two things happens. Either there is something wrong with the craft that basically loses communication with Earth and leaves him stranded in space, you know, ad infinitum, basically, or he voluntarily turns off the communication right. and chooses not to return. Or to a Earth. third option, Hal. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Or an intelligence agent like Hal yeah. turns it off, just That's like in the movie. That's true. And then he floats out in space. Anyway. What, what are you doing, Dave? <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, <laughs> um, 
That's true. And it is based on Space Odyssey, so that is a third and very probable uh, possibility. Um, but yeah, nonetheless... Uh, I'm going to have to watch that movie tonight. Seriously, like Kubrick is so hypnotic for me. I don't, I don't oh, need yeah. any chemicals. I can, oh, yeah. I can watch the entire... One time I convinced my daughter in high school to watch it with her for her film buddies. And I guess all the boys loved it or pretend to love it. And, and she still is angry at me for recommending that <laughs> three-hour <laughs> epic. <laughs> Anyway, I love it. Me too. <laughs> it makes no damn sense whatsoever. The ending oh, makes I think no it, sense. Well, I it, see. There's a lot being said for that, and I have my theories about. Yeah, that, but, I mean, yeah. I've read the book, which was based on the film, yeah. not not the other right. way around. Um, but I still have no idea what the hell happens at the end. In short, I simply think it's the, the you know we would um, we would take um, like the kid would take a lightning bug, yeah, and you put it into a jar. And you put little grass in there to make it like his home so he feels comfortable. And then we sit there and we look at the lightning bug and then he dies the next day if we don't put holes in the top. I think that whatever alien entity that sent the uh, monoliths created what they thought was like a home environment for humans. So you see this room with all this like ancient, not ancient, but um, classic architecture and hmm. busts and painting. And, and he's kind of stuck in this. And I think it's because they thought he would feel more at home. Um, in this environment. Like, they searched his memories and they came up with a very loose idea of what a human being would find comfortable. Anyway, it's, we can go on a long time. That, that, yeah, really, that'd be its own podcast, but that, that makes sense. That's what I think. That makes sense. I mean, I've seen this movie countless times and I've, I've come away every time with a different understanding, never a complete understanding, but different, pos- you know, different interpretations. I like that one. I've never really... That, that makes sense. I um, I, I may know. or may not have come up with that under the influence of some <laughs> chemicals. But. <laughs> yeah, but I, Kubrick. I mean, all of his work, you know, from Doctor Strange Love through Clockwork Orange, through Eyes Wide Shut. I mean, I I love Kubrick, but it's and I love two thousand one. I've always. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, it is just a visual feast. I mean, it is just candy for the. Well, for the it would eyes. be Star Wars if it wasn't for well, exactly. Yeah, but but yeah, I've never never pretended to to fully understand that film at all but um anyway um the song uh was originally released in 69 on bowie's self-titled album and it was time to coincide with the moon landing it was released as a single the song charted at number five in the uk becoming his first chart hit in that territory in america the single found a very small audience and bubbled under at number 124 that's a crime but in 1972 the album was retitled space oddity Reissued in the U.S. and Bowie achieved modest success in America with the singles "Changes" and the "Gene Genie." So the newly released "Space Oddity" single made it to number fifteen. And do you know why I know this? Because when we were preparing for a future episode on 1973, oh. it, I, I I felt like the song. I thought that was the time period, and and then I did a little research and realized what you just explained. Yeah. So it really is much earlier. Yeah. Um, in 1980, Bowie released a follow-up to the song titled Ashes to Ashes, where Major Tom once again makes contact with Earth. He says he's happy in space, but ground control comes to the conclusion that he is a junkie mm-hmm. in the song. And there's also a sequel written in 1983 by the German Peter electro Schilling? musician Peter yeah. Schilling. <laughs> uh, he released a sequel uh, titled Major Tom, I'm Coming Home. Set to a techno beat, it tells the story of Major Tom in space. That song reached number fourteen. Love that one. Love it. I do too. Uh, And I wanted to make sure I said it, so it made it onto the mention songs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, um, it's just I I love this song. This is one that I just 
I get such a thrill when when Space Oddity comes on, you know. And and Bowie has other songs. I mean, I could have easily made the argument for you know to to add Ziggy, you know, to to the list for this is my for Space Oddity is my favorite. Yeah, Bowie song. It, it, it is mine too. Uh, changes and and uh, Young Americans, Modern Love. I mean, th- there are others that you know, Let's Dance that they come close, but Space Oddity to me is just. Uh, I, I, I it, it, it's epic. It just is. Well, he's a good example of another artist that I respect, and I have a lot of his work, and I, I think he's hugely influential. Obviously, um, I don't have as much of an emotional connection with his music. With Space Oddity, I do. Yeah. But and I like songs like Young Americans and and, and so forth. But um, but never kind of got like. Um, like Low, I like because it's such an experimental record with Brian Eno and, and some of that stuff, but just never became a David Bowie fan fan, per se. Me neither. Um, I mean, I, and much the same thing, what you just said. I, I There are songs by Bowie I love, and Space Oddity is my favorite among them. I, I love Space Oddity, but Bowie is an artist. He's hit or miss for me. Yeah. yeah. So much the same way, um, I, I would agree. But Ziggy Stardust is classic. I love oh, that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I, I almost went Ziggy. Um, but I mean, he, he does have songs I enjoy. Suffragette City. Uh, there are songs I love by Bowie, but I just, Space Oddity is the only song that by him that when it comes on the radio, I, I turn it up yeah. every time. So. That guitar sound, and that guitar in Ziggy Stardust is like a precursor to the oh, yeah. alternative punk music to come. The song itself isn't, but that that guitar sound. Oh, oh man, good good stuff. Oh yeah. All right. All right. I am up next. Okay, so this is the most current um, um, that current band that I'm going to talk about. This actually comes from 2009. Um, but I had to I include it. It might have been because I just saw this band live about a month ago, and so it's in the forefront of my mind. But I'm going to go with uh, with the band, a little band called Muse, and uh, the song Uprising, which came from the album The Resistance. You want to talk about an over-the-top? I mean, I knew they would be because the music, Muse's music, is it's even hard to pigeonhole because it's it it, really it's is. alternative rock. It also has progressive elements to it. Um, it, 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 but it's it's kind of like U2 in the sense that it's unabashedly over the top. Well, more so than U2. U2 at least pretends to kind of keep a rap on things. I think Muse and, and Matt Bellamy is just like, hey, heck with it. Like we're no holds barred, man. We're just gonna. 
we're going to throw it all out there and we don't care if it's melodramatic or over the top. This is who we are. And that's what I love so much about Muse. And I think it's what so many, I think, classic rock fans can relate to. It's one of those bands that came out a generation later. But most Gen Xers who are familiar with Muse almost instantly identify with them because they have that sound that's very reminiscent of Gen X and, and even the generations before that. So when I saw them in Columbus, um, yeah, I knew that there'd be a light show and there'd be all sorts of like stage props, which there were. Um, I mean, to the point where it was almost spinal tapish. <laughs> I looked at my friend and I said, um, God, I, I really I'm loving this, but man, it's getting into spinal tap territory when this giant thing came on stage with arms and moving around. But um, to- total entertainment. I mean, from top to bottom, one of the one of the probably the most fun I've had at a show in a long, long time. Um, the song uh, Uprising was a huge commercial success for the band. In fact, it's, it's their highest. I didn't know this because I know Muse. I discovered Muse kind of, I think, probably through Guitar Hero, through Knights of Sidonia, which was big at the time. And so I just kind of followed Muse on my own. In other words, I didn't see it through a lens of, of commercial radio play or a lens of like reading about it or watching them on MTV. Like none of that part was part of my world when I discovered Muse. Uh, it was almost like I discovered them in isolation. And so I had no idea what songs were singles, what songs hit. I, I couldn't tell you one from the other. So I was surprised, not surprised because it's a great song, but to find out that this kind of is their most identified Song. Um, I thought Knights of Sardonia would be, but this apparently was their highest charted song. In fact, it's the only single the, uh, of the band to reach the top 40 and went to number 37 on the top 40, which kind of surprised me. Um, on the uh, Billboard Alternative Songs chart, it went to number one. It stayed at number one for 17 weeks and stayed on the charts for over a year. Mm. So um, apparently on the Alternative Songs chart, this is one of the highest charted songs of, of all time on that particular chart. Hmm. And then the video. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you seen the video? Oh, yeah. Uh, just over the top, just giant teddy bears destroying an entire town. Yeah, you heard that right. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> and and for the song's message, um, you know, much of the theme of Muse Music is fighting this very vague tyranny of oppression. It's never anything specific, right? They're never really talking about a particular regime. Um, they're just basically talking about oppression in general and fighting against it and fighting against the power. Even the new album, by the way, the new album I used, um, that they were supporting on this tour um, is really, really good. It's really solid. And I respect Matt Bellamy because he, he wrote a lot of it during COVID, which a lot of art now that we're hearing came during COVID. And the studio is downtown L.A., and he said that the, some of the riots and you know the race riots that were going on also during COVID yeah. were happening right outside the studio. And he, he boarded up um, the windows, but he didn't leave. He didn't flee like a lot of people did. He stayed there and he looked out through the, through the boards in the window. He watched everything. Uh, he took everything in. And uh, a lot of the material from that ends up appearing on this record. Another part of the record was, too, they wanted to kind of, they were, they were pressured by the label, I think, to do somewhat of a greatest hits compilation. And so they, they held them off for a little bit by doing this instead. They said, you know what? We've evolved over the years. Let's write an album of new material that has an homage to all the styles that we developed as a band, which I think is pretty unique. I'm, I'm not sure I've heard of another band doing that. Mm-mm. So they went through the, the different albums throughout the, the last 20 years. And they kind of captured that sound in new original music. So it's a, not a greatest hits, greatest hits, if that makes sense. And that's what I love so much about the album is because it's just, it's just a lot of fun. Again, it's just as over the top. 
Yeah, you know, the first song, The Will of the People, it's like, yeah, like what people, what will, it doesn't matter. It's just, it's good stadium chanting, sing along, get really angry at nothing in particular type music. <laughs> That's Muse. I, I used to always say, when someone say, well, what does Muse sound like? I'd say, well, it's like if, if you two, Queen and Radiohead, had a baby. That is fairly <laughs> accurate yeah that's, that's pretty close because vocally he's he's very much a freddie mercury type um just really expansive almost operatic type vocal um like i said the music is is very big stadium-esque like you too but then it has that the weirdness of, of radiohead that unconventional element yeah to it as well yeah i i don't know i always felt bad for muse stephanie meyer uh, is a huge fan, and she credits them for the Twilight series because she wrote really. She wrote the books. Listening, I had no idea to that. Muse. Yeah, ah. yeah. Are so, you familiar with their their work much? Or um, yeah, here and there. It's, I mean, it's I've, not likely one to be uh, requested at no, a, a wedding. So. No, it, it's not. Um, but I mean, I've, I've picked up on some of the music here, and I mean, I I have it in the databases that you know I, I subscribe to as a DJ, but. Um, I, I I know quite a few other songs. I I'm, I haven't really made a connection with them. It's not something that I pursued. Sure, sure. Um, just not. Well, I'll make a playlist for you. <laughs> I, I, yeah. No, it, it, um, it, it's very of all the three I mentioned. It, it's it's more Queen than anything else. Oh yeah. Which is what I kind of love about it. It's not trying to copy Queen, but it's definitely a nod. Mm-hmm. to the bands that, that made them who they are and Queen would be, I think, oh, number it, one. It definitely is. I, I think, to me, Muse is just... Their unconventionality is what I respect most, but mm-hmm. it also is what leaves me... It's what makes me distance myself from, from learning more about sure, them. Sure, sure. So I, I, I appreciate the quirk, but it's not a quirk. It's not, it's not a... The unconventionality is not one that I am drawn to. I mean, I yeah. love artists sure. that, you know, push boundaries and do their own thing and sound like no one else. I mean, we just talked about that last week with the B-52s and, and um, Steely Dan. Mm-hmm. Um, Steely Dan, great example. I, I love Steely Dan. B-52s, I like the five or six songs I know. Sure. You yeah, know, yeah, so yeah. Muse, it's, Muse falls somewhere in between. What's, so. Here's what's strange for me about Muse, right? So most bands that I kind of get into, you have that cursory level where you hear something and you decide you like it or not, right? And then you might go the next route, either getting the Greatest Hints compilation or listening to a playlist on Spotify that someone's made. And then you kind of have a decision. A lot of times it just kind of ends there. You're like, okay, I kind of know what this band's about. It's mm-hmm. cool. I can talk about it. And then you usually kind of launch, if you really like it, you launch into like fandom where you start bringing up the studio albums, you start listening to them intently, you find that emotional attachment to the music, then you start reading about the band and trivia and facts and, and the whole shebang. Music is interesting because it's a whole like sub-level that I got to or in-between level where um, I couldn't tell you, like, like, and maybe a part of it too is because a lot of their songs um, they don't have a chorus that's the same as the title. Yeah. Okay, so... There are songs all the time that I hear that I've heard a lot, dozens and dozens of times that I know is Muse. Um, I couldn't tell you the name of the song, hmm. but I but I know it's Muse and I know I love it. And I don't have to. It was the band that I that I got into fandom without getting into fandom. I've never gone through and memorized all the what songs on what album. Uh, I couldn't tell you what album came before what album. I couldn't tell you what years the album came out. Uh, I can't tell you what the song's about. I, I know very little about the band other than what I basically just disclosed. 
And yet, and yet, just about any time, any place, I can randomly throw on a Muse album and I'm instantly into it. I'm instantly having a good time and I'm along for the ride. It's almost like being on a roller coaster um, and not really caring where it's going or how it got there or how it compares to other roller coasters you've ridden. But you know, once you get on that coaster, you're going to enjoy it. Yep. That's Muse for me. <laughs> Which I, I get it totally. Um, okay. Well, uh, this is my most recent uh, pick. Not uh, as timely, as as a contemporary as Muse by any stretch. Uh, this one goes to 1991. So <laughs> calling it uh, recent is, is a bit of a misnomer. But it is the newest of the songs that I chose. And it hit number six uh, on Billboard in 1991. Comes from the album Nevermind. This is yet another one that we have used in the past. We used it for the 1991 episode. Mm. It is Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. It's another one that I just, I felt compelled to use. Um, because at the start of the 90s, I mean, you had polished, you had the polished perfection of pop, and then you had the, the big hair of glam rock. But one band, one band, broke through and revolutionized the entire music landscape, right? Um, smells Like Teen Spirit, I mean, it took that raw authenticity of, of the Seattle grunge and they merged it with phenomenal melodic writing and, and performance. And it, it it just completely revolutionized the music industry. So if you're talking songs that have influenced and, and just songs that have become so iconic, I felt like you can't have this mixtape without including Smells Like Teen Spirit. Um, I almost, when that song came out, and of course <coughs> I was instantly hooked by it. This is the, the music snob in me. After about my 10th listen, it was so good, so poppy, although it didn't sound like a pop song, but I felt like a pop song. Does that make sense? Yeah. That I almost was like, oh, that's 
it's almost too poppy. Like, is this band having legitimacy? These are weird things that call my <laughs> mind, you know. And then I listen to the rest of the record, and I'm like, oh, wow, like, this is totally something else, you know. But I still kind of feel that way. It's like, um, um, it, it, it's so good, it's almost too good for what the band was trying to do. Yep, and I, that's that's a lar- large part of what I what I wrote down here in my notes. Um, first of all, the title. I We talked a little bit about this the last time, but Kathleen Hanna, she was the lead singer of the group Bikini Kill. She gave Cobain the idea for the title when she wrote Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit on his bedroom wall after a night of drinking and spraying graffiti around Seattle. Um, in his pre-Courtney Love days, Cobain went out with Bikini Kill lead singer Toby Vale, but she had dumped him, and Vale wore Teen Spirit deodorant. <laughs> and Hannah was implying that Cobain was marked with her scent. That's what she was, basically, that, that was the joke. Well, Cobain, Kurt, had no idea that Teen Spirit was a deodorant. He, he thought that she was crediting him with being, you know, a, a, uh, a prophet, if you will, of, you know, That's his funny. generation. So six months later, Hannah got a call from Cobain asking her if he could use what she had written on the wall for a lyric. And Hannah told him that he could do whatever the hell he liked with the lyric. But she also thought to herself, how in the hell is she going to use Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit <laughs> as a lyric? Um, of course, how could she possibly know that her graffiti would change the course of rock and roll history, right? Uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit, you know, it's an interesting song in, in many ways. The guitar sound is definitely striking in its distortion and edginess. From the minute the guitar introduces the song, listeners realize this is a band that sounds completely different from the world around them. And the way Cobain slides from chord to chord, it sounds raw and unrehearsed, but yet it's so perfectly executed, yeah. which is what you were getting at. Yeah. Um, Novoselic's bass, I mean, it it provides the song's underlying pulse, but there's actually more to it than you might think when you hear it underneath the the rest of the mix because isolated, you can hear his slides across the bass, which definitely create that longing and pull that gives the song its contradictory sense of being pulled back simultaneously as it pushes forward. And of course, when Grohl's drums come in, I mean, it's clear that Nirvana was a revolutionary rock band whose sound was unlike anything uh, on the radio at the time. Uh, it, you know, it, it was clear upon first listen in 91, this trio of talented hard rockers was about to change the musical landscape. And it proved what so many had feared, that rock music, in fact, was not dead. It was the, the last gasp. It really was, yeah. <laughs> as far as rock as a popular, right? the dominant popular style it, of popular music. Exactly, yeah. So, but but... Perhaps the most striking part of the song, though, is Cobain's haunting vocals, yeah. which carries such amazing melodic content amid such a hard, aggressive sound. Um, you know, it's a huge element of what makes the song and Nirvana so amazing. Uh, the band takes this hard-rocking grudge sound coming out of the Washington scene and uses it in conjunction with phenomenally captivating melodies. I mean, Cobain's vocal melodies throughout the song are, are wildly different and creative, when juxtaposed with the straightforward chord progression. And then you have the song's cynical lyrics, which are epitomized in the chorus, which begins, here we are now, entertain us. So according to Cobain, this was a line that he used whenever he would go to a party. He said that he used to walk into a party and he would look around and he said, a lot of times you're just standing around with people in a room, it's really boring and it's really uncomfortable. So he had the habit of, when coming to a party to break the ice, he would say, well, um, you know, here I am. You know, you invited us here. We're here. Entertain us. Mm -hmm. 
and he used it then in the song. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the song's music video, more than anything, I think captured the angst and the teen-inspired focus of the song. And the video features the band performing in a high school gym to anarchy-touting cheerleaders and apathetic teenage listeners. And as the performance continues, the teens erupt into a scene of chaos. Uh, the music video is really the perfect complement to Nirvana's takeover of the popular music landscape at the time. It visually declared grunge's dominance and highlighted the changing aesthetic of the, of the new generation. Um, the song was an instant success on the college radio circuit, but it also became the unexpected crossover hit that took grunge mainstream. And a couple of months after its release, the song hit number six, uh, the same week uh, that the Nevermind album hit number one. It also hit number seven in the UK, where it stayed on the charts for 184 weeks, which far, far longer than... than That's when all the record States. executives started scrambling, and all the other grunge bands that have been around even longer than Nirvana got signed. Exactly. <laughs> overnight. Yeah. Some very much deserved it, and others probably not so much. But yeah, and they, you know, it, it was trending. So mm -hmm. yeah, everybody... Everybody from Seattle that had uh, a guitar basically was signed at that point. It, was, it really was the year of Nirvana, though. Uh, Nevermind uh, topped uh, the Village Voice and Melody Makers year-end polls, hitting number two on the best singles of the year list by Rolling Stone, which smells like Teen Spirit. Um, the song was nominated for two Grammy Awards, Best Hard Rock Performance with Vocal and Best Rock Song. And the song catapulted Nirvana into mainstream success, forcing the very reluctant Cobain uh, into the undesired role as the spokesperson for Generation X. And Cobain's tragic suicide in 94 caused fans to dig even deeper into the song. That um, I think uh, overwhelmingly people were looking into the song. They were looking into the entire, you know, the, the entirety of the discography of, of Nirvana, trying to find hints as to what happened. Um, which I think really, you know, smells like Teen Spirit in, in so many ways. It, it really was a song that just captured the, the all those poignant emotions of the latchkey generation. I mean, we were, you know, when we, when we joke, you know, that whatever is our mantra, well, uh, who cares and, and, you know, whatever, who cares, you know, to take it a step further, that's Nirvana. And mm -hmm. I, I really, I, I don't know. I know we used it before. It's the second of three songs that I'm about to repeat uh, on this week's episode, but I had to include it. It belongs there. Yep. You just gave me an idea for an episode. What's that? Songs that we can remember where we were and what we were doing the first time we heard them. That is an interesting idea. Because think about that. Think of all the hundreds, maybe hundreds of thousands of songs we listened to in our lifetime, right? Yeah. But only a handful of them. And I know already these are big songs, so we were able to say, oh, I remember where I was when I heard Funeral for a Friend. You know, I remember where I was when I heard Nirvana for the first time in my dorm room with our buddy Doug. And so I think I could probably come up with at least 12 more that I could definitively say, I was here, I was doing this, this is how I was feeling the first time I heard this song. Oh, yeah. Just a thought. I love it. Yeah. Have to keep that one in mind. Yeah. I like yeah. that. Okay. All right. So this next one. Wow, this was a big song. This was a big album for us in high school. This was uh, from the album The End of the Innocents. Oh, yes. By Don Henley. You say it like, oh, yes. <laughs> no. I, I love the song. I love the album. I just, it was, it was how, yeah. how we 
yeah, we <laughs> we we used it in high school quite excessively. Eighty nine. Yeah, there are some records that um, probably got too much attention from us just because of our state of mind at the time. Yeah. This is a great album. Nothing to take away from this album. Oh but, no, it's but uh, it held a higher place than it probably should have. Yeah, <laughs> we were, and that was yeah, that was my response. Just I now. think part of it is you know we we, we grew up with classic rock. Um, we kind of eschewed the music of the day for the most part. But when you had a classic rocker who was still going strong and came up with an album, boy, that was huge. And so we were, of course, big Eagles fans, and Don Henley had had some success solo. When we came out with this record, and I think we were probably either freshman or soft, soft, maybe sophomore in high school in 89. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it was one of those that I'm pretty sure, and I can't tell you where I was when I heard it first time, but I, I know um, the video was probably the first um, introduction to um, the song that we're going to talk about, End of the Innocence. And um, after that, I probably immediately went out and bought it. And this song itself, just the song itself, is probably one of my all-time favorite songs. Um, and it shouldn't be. And I say that just <laughs> because of it's somewhat it's, it's somewhat simplistic. It's very simple. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing complex about this song. But what we, we considered ourselves philosophers. Yes, we know? did. And, yes. you know, we sat and talked about the meaning of life and, and such. And the song, for as simple as it is, it captured it, it, it defined our mood. Yeah. It, it defined yeah. the very things that we were so. We were growing up, and this song is about growing up, a generation yeah. growing up. It's a generation growing up, and we were kids growing up. Yeah. And granted, he's talking about the boomer generation um, taking a turn you know, during the Reagan years um, and, and loss of innocence in that respect of how the 60s spirit died in the 80s. Well, that's, you know, deadhead sticker yeah, on a Cadillac. Cadillac. That was yeah. very much a theme for Henry. Right. Um, but for us as teenagers, it was our childhood, right? Our, our innocence as, as children. I don't know that we even made the connection that directly back then, but... It was. It kind of represented a new, and, and for me, it was several. One, I was hugely into black and white photography at the time, and and um, I, I, Ansel Adams was my favorite photographer. Um, I could never quite get the 
you know, real good contrast between black and white, like Ansel Adams did. Um, you know, we had a dark room at the high school and we all experimented with photography and stuff. And so <clears throat> when the video came out, which with the video, by the way, I didn't know this until doing my research, David Fincher directed that video. Did he really? Before he was a, a Hollywood uh, director of, of much repute. Huh. Um, repute, is that the right word I'm looking repute, for? Yeah, yes. repute, okay. Yep. Um, he, um, he did commercials and he did music videos, and that's how he kind of broke into Hollywood. And this was one of his videos. And now it all makes sense why this video is one of the greatest videos ever made. Um, the video is simply a, uh, a bunch of different images um, in black and white, in Ansel Adam, black and white, in that perfect contrast. Um, in images of, of what we associate with innocence, like open fields, wind blowing, um, you know, some of it even is directly in, in inspired by the lyrics of the song, laying in the tall grass on a summer day. Um, and then you have um, images of how things uh, have changed. Probably the most direct one is the line, this tired old king, tired old man that we elected king, yeah. um, who uh, beat uh, the plowshares into swords, which is the opposite of the uh, Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah, where they talk about taking swords and putting them in the plowshares, right? He reverses that biblical scripture and relates it to the Reagan era. And then in the video, there's a picture of uh, like a campaign poster of Reagan, and it's like torn through the middle, and it's, it's showing some age at this point, because this is the end of the Reagan era, right? This is 1989. We've, we've gone through two terms of Reagan at this point. And so I just love that image, and, and the whole thing just just worked for me in every every single level. So the song, the video, the sentiment, everything. Um, but yeah, it's very simple. Simple chord progression, melody. Um, it's it's poetically political. It's not. It's thinly veiled. It's not too hard to figure out what he's talking about, right? No, not it's not. At all. It's not really cryptic, but it is. It, it, there are metaphors, of course. And then you add Bruce Hornsby uh, on piano, and Bruce Hornsby is one of those pianists that's instantly recognizable with his style. And so they actually co-wrote the song together. And just all of those elements together just make one of the, I think, the most perfect songs I've heard in my lifetime. Um, there are other great moments in the album, right? New York Minute, great song. Heart of the Matter, that was like our taps for breakup oh, songs. Loved it, yeah. <laughs> I put it on so many breakup tapes. Uh, Last Worthless Evening, and these are all great songs. Um, some of the songs were a little bit weaker with filler, so that's why I don't consider it maybe a classic album top to bottom. Um, but it is a great album with strong sing singles, and the actual title track that opens this is just phenomenal. Yeah. Well, and you, you, you're absolutely right with the video. Um, the only other video I can think of that had the same impact, well, not the same impact, that, that's not true <laughs> at all, but, but that same artistic approach, the, the black and white, and the, for me, would, would be Wicked Game. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Which, yeah. elicited very different emotions <laughs> well, watching yes, of course it, it did. Uh, and Victoria's Secret you know yeah. Angel you right. know Helena Christensen but um, but still I mean the black and white I, I don't feel like it's used enough right you know people are so hungry for color uh, it's like that line from uh, Kodachrome yeah you know? everything looks worse everything looks worse in black and white which is not true black and white to me offers such stark contrast to me it's it's Captivating. I agree. Oh, and there's um, a line from My Little Town where all, you know, the rainbow and all the colors are black. It's not that the colors aren't there. It's just we lack imagination. Exactly. It's yeah. the same kind of thing. It's um, No, I disagree with Paul Simon on that. He must have. Yeah. <laughs> like, must, yeah, you, I don't know. He got a little too. That, that's another song. That's a good example. I mentioned maybe last week about how I, could, I, I thought songs that were apocalyptic that weren't. And so when I heard my little, Our Little Town or My Little Town from Simon Garfunkel, that, their last single together, um, I thought, because these images of like the dirty breeze and 
you have like the, the rainbow of black, different colors of black. And I thought it was like the end of the world. And now I, I go back and listen to him. I'm like, no, he's just describing a little factory town mm-hmm. in like outside New York where the soot from the factory made everything, you know, and it was really about uh, the failure of the American dream. But I thought it was about the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I, I um, never... Never went that direction with that song. Um, so that, that's that's funny. I just <laughs> don't know. Um, okay, well, if you're talking black and white, this song conjures that uh, that dichotomous relationship for me, too. Um, I think it's partially because of the album cover. Uh, this one uh, it's, comes from 1981. The song hit number 19. The name of the album was Face Value. And the song is In the Air Tonight by Mm, Phil Collins. Yeah. I cannot believe that we are in season four and we have not used this song in three well, and, seasons. And talk about a song that when it was a single was was a hit, but in no way, I mean, it grew. It, oh, yeah. For, for various reasons I'm sure you're going to talk about. Yeah. But it's one of those Creeper songs, which at the time was like, oh, yeah, this is a cool, like, Phil Collins, Genesis, in fact, Genesis, you know, I'm sure I'll talk about this too, um, decided not to put it on yeah. the album Duke. And um, it just became so iconic. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, well, well, Collins wrote the song about the anger he felt after divorcing his first wife, Andrea Bertarelli, in 1980. One of his, like, 17 million songs he wrote about yeah. that. Yeah, pretty much his entire discography. Uh, he was so devastated that he left Genesis for a short time. And all the original songs on the Face Value album, including the follow-up hit, I Missed Again, which we have used mm-hmm. uh, in the past, uh, were at one time intended to be messages to his first wife in an attempt to lure her back to him. Uh, I don't know that he understands what is uh, enticing uh, because these are not songs that would lure anybody back to you. Uh, they're very angry songs. And there's Please Don't Ask and then there's Against All Odds and then like there oh, were just yeah. so many. So many and they keep coming. About this one particular because yeah. he actually moved back to Vancouver which is where his, his, basically his wife didn't want him to tour anymore. Right. And he tried to make it work with her. But yeah, go ahead. Sir. Yeah. Stealing your thunder. No, it's all good. <laughs> all good. Um, yeah, the, the lingering tension caused by the divorce led Collins to the title as these negative feelings were in the air and affecting not just the couple getting divorced, but the entire family. Uh, by the time the album was released, Collins had moved on and was dating Jill Tableman, who, who became his second wife. His split with her would inspire the songs on Collins' 1993 album, Both Sides. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, he had, he has quite the uh, the record, if you excuse the pun. Um, the meaning of "In the Air Tonight" became a pervasive urban myth, though. 
which is what I oh, love, yeah. which is what I love most about this song. <laughs> the, the sto- and, we, and we edited up hook line oh, sinker back in high school. Absolutely, absolutely. The, the story, which is not true, I want I want to emphasize that it's not true, is that Collins watched as a man who raped his wife drowned. Uh, another version of the myth has Collins writing the song about a man who watched another drown and singing it to him at a concert. <laughs> Yet another variation claims that when Collins was a young boy, he witnessed a man drowning someone but was too far away to help. Later, according to the myth, he hired a private detective to, to, to find the man. So, so he could write a song and sing it to him at a concert. Yeah. So, yeah, sent, sent the man a free ticket to his concert <laughs> and then premiered the song that night with the spotlight on the man the whole time. Okay? So, now, these stories, which I repeat are not at all true, they spread by word of mouth. And then in the mid-90s, when chat rooms and message boards started showing up on the internet, they were again a topic of debate. Mm-hmm. I mean, the urban legends just kept coming and coming about this song. The, the lyric in question is, if I saw you drowning, I would not lend a hand. Right. Okay? I've seen your face before, my friend, but I don't think you know who I am. That, that's the... Right. Now, that's not the only lyric in the song that's dark. I mean, this is a dark sure. song, but that's the lyric that uh, caused the urban legends to continue to grow. Um Collins has explained that the drowning is symbolic, representing the pain and anger he was feeling at the time. Uh, The line really connected as uh, a rebuke entering the lexicon, along with sayings like, I wouldn't give you the time of day, or, you know, not if you were the last person on earth. Uh, Certainly, he says, you know, there was no, you know, history of... At least that's of, what he wants you to think. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, he doesn't want you to know who he drowned. Yeah, so... It's, uh, nonetheless, uh, In the Air Tonight was Phil Collins' first single as a solo artist. He claims that he offered it up as a Genesis song, but that his bandmates rejected it, saying it was too simple. And which, now they, they say, no, we, if we would have included it... Exactly, day, yeah. Tony, Tony Banks has since said um, he's insisted that Collins never played them the song. I don't buy that for a minute. No, no, no. no. Um, the, the Face Value album, uh, Collins' first as a solo artist, outsold every previous Genesis album, which prompted the group to change musical direction with less prog and more pop. And then later in 81, they released the album Abacab, with a hit title track that got them on radio and MTV for the first, um, really for the first time. And and then following that success for the rest of the decade, both the band and Collins were pretty consistent hit makers. Uh, by 1986, their former lead singer, Peter Gabriel, was also a pop star. His song Sledgehammer knocked the Genesis hit Invisible Touch from number one in the U.S. that year. So all of, all of Genesis, and of course you had Rutherford, I mean, you know, Mike and the Mechanics was pure. Yeah. pure well, they all they all contributed. They did. Yeah, the three members would each contribute three to four songs for every album. Yeah, and it became pretty apparent. Nothing against Mike Rutherford and Tony Banks, but that Phil Collins was the most talented songwriter. Yeah, and of course, uh, so was Peter Gabriel, but he was gone by the time. And so, yeah, that it just made sense commercially if they wanted to um, continue to make good pop music, and mm-hmm. that's what I believe Genesis is. It was a smart decision on their part. Because I love old Genesis, you know that. Yeah. But it was time. It was time for them to kind of move on. Yeah. Um, now, this song, it was featured on the first episode of the TV series, Miami Vice. 
So that was the first resurgence of the song. Yes, which used a groundbreaking MTV-friendly editing style and featured cameos by many famous musicians, including Collins, uh, who played the bad guy in the season two episode, Phil the Shill. <laughs> Love that title. Uh, its theme song by Jan Hammer was the number one hit in the U.S. We used that on the instrumental uh, episode. Uh, the song was just a modest hit in America when it was released in 1981. Speaking of In the Air Tonight, a very modest hit. Um, but its use in Miami Vice gave it a big kick and made it unequivocally cool as it was now associated with the trend-setting show. So when the Miami Vice soundtrack album was released after season one, In the Air Tonight was a key track, along with Smuggler's Blues, You Belong to the City, both by Glenn Fry and Better Be Good to Me by Tina Turner, Four million people bought the album, and the song has been going strong ever since, continuously appearing in movies, TV shows, and commercials, and becoming a common pop culture reference. Most notably, The Hangover, which introduced yes. it to a whole new generation yep. of, of millennials. Yep. Yeah. Now, one I, you can't talk about it in the air tonight without bringing this up. One of pop culture's greatest guilty pleasures is to air drum. Mm-hmm to the drum break in this song. I'll Mike Tyson. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, down-tempo songs like this one rarely feature huge drum breaks, but this one is massive, uh, invigorating the track at the 340 mark. Collins told... Because there's no drum up to that point. Yeah, none yeah, at all. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and he's using a drum machine, right. no less. I mean, he's Collins is a drummer. Right. Uh, he's a percussionist, but this is all drum machine that, you know, largely is just, he's just playing with the... Mm -hmm. the settings uh, he says um, he said in interviews I didn't think about the drum fill I just did it that particular take and that's the one we used he said we didn't sit there thinking oh boy their mouths are going to be dropping when they hear this it was nothing like that so I, this is I mean when I say it is a guilty pleasure of pop culture it, it truly is and yet Phil kind of just you know kind of uh, you know says that it meant nothing. I mean, he didn't put any great thought into this at all. A year later, there was another down-tempo hit with a conspicuous drum break. Jack and Diane. Oh, yeah. Right before dun, he gets into dun, the Bible Belt. Yeah. But, yeah, those are the only two that I can think of or that I can name that are down-tempo that have just that that yeah. very, you know, deliberate, very purposeful drum break uh, before the bridge of the song. So, but yeah, in the air tonight, I... Uh, I had to include it. I mean, there's, I, I, I'd be going to hell had I not included it. It, it would have been sacrilege. Yeah, I mean, the most recent example of where it is in I don't know, pop culture, but it's the zeitgeist, I guess, is when, um, as Cleveland Browns fans, you know, when Baker Mayfield played for us for, for a time, um, and he was obviously quite animated character, mm -hmm. um, pregame. Uh, yep. they, they were playing this one time and he was out in the middle of the field for warm-ups and he did the drum fill. Yeah. And it hit social media and went everywhere. And oh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those songs that uh, for good reason will will never go away. And uh, yeah, it just, it just always shocks me. Phil Collins' story is one of the greatest stories in rock and roll because he's clearly one of the, the most talented. Um, and I'm, I'm saying this from drummers that have told me this. I don't know because I'm not a drummer, but clearly one of the most talented drummers. Oh, yes, yeah. Of the rock era, and he starts as as a drummer, and he has his place in Genesis. And um, when Peter Gabriel leaves, and he fills in the guide vocals for their next record, and they can't find anyone else that they like better than him, and so he takes over the mm -hmm. vocals, and then he starts 
amping up the songwriting and then he gets into a really really good string of pop hits and then he ends up in the good old call contemporary writing for Disney's Tarzan yeah I mean I can't think of any other rock story to start and end where it does it's it's yeah, so unique it's gonna be a movie someday and not to mention the fact that he looks nothing like a rock star oh no he's a little short bald British guy and yet women in the 80s were screaming for oh, him yeah none of Phil Collins makes sense if you were to pitch this to a record executive they would laugh you out of the mm-hmm. office absolutely and it worked yeah no I, as a drummer yeah Phil Collins is the real deal I mean he's He's no Neil Peart, but yeah. nobody well, yeah, nobody right. is Neil Peart right. other than Neil. Peart, you know, um, but no, he's he is legit. He's he's one of the best drummers in in rock history. But yeah, you're right. His story, it's just it 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 has to be a movie someday because yeah. he's been all over the damn place. I mean, it's just un, unreal yeah. to see. You know the progression. So yeah, and we, we you were at the Dennis show, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. We yeah. had an opportunity to see him, which was painful. It was, but it, it was painful. He still sounded good. He did. Yeah, yeah. He sounded like Phil, but I don't just. I mean, I didn't. I didn't pity him. You know, I mean, he clearly, yeah, clearly was was doing his thing, and and you know, the music is still very much alive with him, but. It was just so painful to see him confined to the chair. I, I just oh. and it's cool that his son was on the drums. Was on the drums. Yeah, that was that awesome was, that was very well. cool. Yeah, keeping it in the family. All right. Well, we've already mentioned this band on this episode already. Um, my next choice, my next to last choice, while we're getting near the end here, is what some people will argue, some critics will argue, and I will not argue against them. Um, maybe the greatest or one of the greatest at least albums of the 80s and that is The Queen is Dead mm-hmm. by The Smiths and I, I, I'll just say it that's my hot take I, I, I will say it's at least my favorite album of the 1980s and I think it's the greatest album of the 1980s and we could have a whole discussion you know about that so right back if you disagree but um, I think it'd be hard pressed to disagree with that once if you really really understand the album and know the album and the impact that it had Anyway, this album begins with a seven-minute, 14-second title track uh, that was developed from a group jam and is one of the most intense recordings, lyrically and musically, of the band's career. And so we talked about this earlier. You know, there's some really, really poppy stuff, even some of the earlier stuff like This Charming Man. I mean, that was, they were on the top of the pops. They were kind of considered, not a boy band per se, but just a pop band in, in England at the time. And then as they began to progress, they began to experiment a little bit more with their sound, especially with what probably is their most popular song now, How Soon Is, is Now. It's the one that was used in The Wedding Singer. And right. people that don't know the Smiths know How Soon Is Now. Um, but after that, just, just what they were able to do, and I think they had five studio albums. They had a number of singles, but they had five studio albums. And uh, this is the next to the last one because they, they didn't last long. Um, but this is this is their peak, man. This is this is their their home run, totally. Um, lyrically, Morrissey got some heat in the media uh, for his anti-monarchical sentiments. Um, the Queen is dead, right? Um, that's pretty clear. Uh, a lot of British artists at the time were very critical of the monarchy and the monarchy's place and the fact that you know they, they didn't really rule anything at all and they just got lots of tax money and continued to perpetuate this tradition and a lot of people were very critical of that especially in the late 70s mm-hmm. when people were hurting um, and The Clash was a big band of course to make comment on oh, that yeah, oh yeah um, big time and um, but before last September right the title offered a completely different interpretation than it would now because the queen has died you know she was in her 90s and uh, it, it, that's an amazing story if you've watched The Crown on Netflix 
the fact that she was basically a child when she took over, not quite, but but almost, and was able to, to, to reign for so long. So now the queen actually is dead. But at the time, you know, it was very controversial. Um, a lot of people not listening to the Smiths or not having um, listened to a lot of the Smiths might be surprised by this track um, because it really is just like the savage, musically and lyrically, just savage. I guess it's the only word that comes to mind. I mean, it's it's no holds barred. It's it, A lot of times, as you mentioned earlier, they're cryptic, and um, this one is just balls to the wall. Listen to the wah pedal on Mars' guitar, the incredible bass line. I guess Rourke just wrote that in studio. Mm. You know, They were just kind of playing around with the song, and Rourke just just came out with this, this one of the best bass lines in alternative music. And then Mike Joyce loops his, his rhythm. Um, he couldn't, I guess, sustain it the entire time the way he wanted to. Um, so he he got a good portion of it um, down um, from the drum kit, and then he just looped it. So that's what keeps up that intensity for seven minutes. And I'd simply say that this song rocks, which is not something you normally say about the Smiths. <laughs> no. <laughs> right? say that I'm absolutely I agree with everything you said I love the Smiths this is my favorite album by them so you had the Smiths you had the Cure mm-hmm. I expected both of those from you you know who else I expected that you did not include though which kind of surprised me I was sure you were going to have Radio Free Europe oh from our, yeah 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 I was waiting for that one you didn't include them for the the episode uh no um and it's a fine song um but REM REM's a band where uh, apparently if you listen to some of the I obviously didn't see them before they were a, a thing but apparently when they first started back in Athens they really didn't know what they were doing um, they had a lot of interesting sounds but it was really chaotic and just people that saw them live were like they liked the energy of it mm-hmm. but it really hadn't come together and then they just played and they played and they played and they played and they learned and then they finally began to kind of hone their songwriting and they honed their playing and so but what I think you hear on the first couple albums are great because it's really raw and really young and really innovative um, but I think it's still um, they're just still building to mm-hmm. what would be greater as they move along because then you start seeing like the third album like Fables the Reconstruction now you start getting that, that R.A.M. sound but a little more mature and then, of course, they later on break into oh, like, the, the pop music and sure. so forth. Yeah. Um, but to me, you know, albums, um, you know, like um, Life's Rich Pageant and Document, um, you know, Automatic for the People, like that's that's the real, that's, really okay. good stuff. And so if I were going to start, but I don't think they're the kind of band that really had an album. I mean, you know, Radio Song was a cool, cool way to start um, um, out of time. 
but I don't know. I'm trying to think okay. through all of them. Yeah, because I and I I would feeling gravity's pool. I like REM. I I wouldn't put any of their opening tracks yeah. on on my mixtape either uh, for this one. But I know so many people, so many music critics who have claimed that Radio Free Europe is one of the greatest openers. So I. I didn't. I just assumed being a fan that yeah, you, know, I, you, you might agree with that. And I have to clarify: I'm not disparaging Murmur. Murmur is is one of the greatest albums of the '80s. It's one of the great albums of alternative rock. It totally defined college rock in that era. I mean, that's and, and what I love about it is the most anti-corporate thing. Not anti-corporate in message, but anti-corporate in the fact that there's like no studio influence in this record. I mean, Don Dixon, who lives here actually in Canton now and produced a lot of that early stuff from down south, he and Mitch Easter produced this record and you could tell they just were hands off, right? They did what they could to make this band just sound like themselves live um, on this record. They didn't try to fit them into any, because that's the thing with R.E.M. being such a unique sound coming up, um, it wasn't really classic rock. It wasn't new wave, really. It wasn't really, you know, obviously, it wasn't synth pop. It was its own thing. It was an American version of the Smiths. Sometimes REMs are referred to as the American version of the Smiths. And so they could have easily said, oh, we got to try to make this sound more like this band, or you need to. They didn't. They let REM sound like REM. And that's why Murmur is such an incredible album. I love it. I listen to it a lot. Not disparaging it. I'm just saying there was a lot more to come from REM. Uh, that would become even even greater. So yeah, no, I can see why people would say that. Yeah, because of what that album represents, and it's a good song, but not on the same level as some of the other ones for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I just didn't know where you stood on that because yeah. I I have I've heard it from so many critics, and I'm just like, I, I like Murmur, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I, I like REM. I'm not a huge Mar. I, I've seen them live. I respect it, but yeah, I know so many that that hail Radio, Radio Free Europe as being like revolutionary and so I didn't know where you stood on that but you didn't include it so just, yeah, just the, curious of all the songs on Murmur it's not It's not. I mean I like it it's just there are so many songs on that album I like like better like more okay yeah I do I do cool um, alright well I said uh, at the offset that there are songs that I felt I needed to explain American Pie was one this is a big one because I will confess that growing up, this is another one of those songs that I, I, you know, I've often joked that we need to do an episode where the theme is, is what the hell is this song about? Because there are so many songs, and I am a lyrics guy, but there are so many songs I do not have the first clue what this song is about. This one, way up there on the list until I really dived in and then did the research for, for this episode. Because for whatever reason, I thought growing up this song was about a cult. And there are people out there who think this song is about the occult. Oh, I know where you're going with And this. there are people out there that believe that the song is, is about a serial killer. No. There are people out there that believe... <laughs> I'm reading way too much into this. Oh, I know they are. Although I, I was one of those that believed in high school I thought it was about. Yeah. There are people that believe it was about the Manson right. family. There right. are people that... Um, that believe it's about a mental hospital, that it's about devil worship. Yeah, Satanism, yeah. Anton LaVey, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. There, there are also, there's even one that's really oddball, one oddball take that believes that it is about a hotel run by cannibals, which uh, puts a delicious spin on you can never check out, but you or you can check out, but you can never leave, um, which gives away the, the song, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about Hotel California.
Here's the the long and short, more long than short, I apologize. But this was Hotel California. It was the title track from the 1976 album by the Eagles. This song hit number one on Billboard. Um, Hotel California, um, really, here the Eagles warn listeners of the two most dangerous things known to man, women and California. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Or to be more precise, California girls. Um, They turned the Beach Boys plea, you know, from 1965 on its head, if you will. Apparently something drastic happened to girls from the Golden State between 65 and 76. I don't know what. But by the time they wrote Hotel California, the Eagles had come to the conclusion that the cutest girls in the world also came with a lot of baggage, I suppose. Uh, The ballad tells a removed, very hauntingly distanced story of a guy driving along the highway, we all know the lyrics, getting tired and stopping at a hotel that ends up being a pleasure palace with a sinister side. I still don't know what Kalidas is, by the way. Kalidas? It's it's a flower. (laughs) I remember every time I sing it, I'm like, what the hell is Kalidas? Yeah, I I never knew either, but it's a a flower that grows in the desert, according to to what I found in the notes. I suppose in the last 40 years, I could have looked it up at some point, but now I know. Well, I looked it up for the first time this week um at least anyway um, what i just said that that's the physical part of what's happening in this song the deeper take revolves around the band's experience with the self-servicing narcissism that they encountered rampant in hollywood uh, before we dive a little deeper into the song though let's let's go over the basic sequence of events uh described in the ballad as the story unfolds the speaker is driving on a dark desert highway late at night he feels the wind in his hair he smells some desert flowers before he long before long, he, he starts to feel drowsy and he stops at a hotel for the night, the Hotel California. A mysterious woman stands and greets him at the door like a Homeric siren and, and lures the weary traveler with her seductive song. This female figure plays a central role in the song, though we never learn all that much about her. And all the while, the speaker isn't sure what to make of the place. He starts to hear voices singing about how lovely and pleasant it is to stay at the hotel. The woman is rich and fun-loving. Her friends are beautiful. So far, so good. And then the speaker orders up some wine from the wine captain, who remarks that the speaker has brought the playful spirit of the 1960s along with him. The speaker passes out and hears the voices again singing about the Hotel California. This time, however, they mention something about having an alibi to prove their innocence. And this tidbit is the first suggestion that all might not be well at our quaint hotel. The speaker then notices how swanky the place is, but... Then the woman tells him that everyone at the hotel is a prisoner of their own making. This is when we should spit out our champagne and ask, what, right? Everyone shows up for dinner in the room of the master, and they stab at some animal or beast that won't die. So naturally, this sends our speaker running for the exit, but now he can't find the exit, and the person who watches over the hotel tells him not to worry because he won't ever be able to escape from the hotel. And such is the fate of our weary traveling narrator. That's a nice Cliff Notes version of the song. It re- yeah. So, I mean, when you get down to it, you're left wondering, what the hell is this song about, <laughs> right? Um, 
but here's the thing. The song title suggests a sunny, laid-back place where people drink lots of pomegranate juice and practice yoga, right? It hints at the state of California, or more accurately, the idea of California. But California, as it turns out, according to the Eagles, really isn't home to anyone. It's a place for people who are between destinations. They're transients. Um, one central theme in Hotel California is the disconnect between popular perceptions of California versus the reality. So Don Henley and Glenn Fry, their, their masterful lyrics here focus much of the attention on this theme of, of perceptions of California in the American collective imagination. Henley's lyrics certainly have a flair for the dramatic as he effortlessly transforms the mood and tone of the story. What once seemed like a small desert paradise quickly turns into a gothic horror. And in many ways, this is a story, though, about California in general, and Los Angeles in particular. Don Felder, the guitarist for the Eagles who wrote the tune, the, the music for Hotel California, has talked about how the song was inspired by driving into L.A. filled with high expectations that were later disappointed. He says, if you drive into L.A. at night, you can just see this glow on the horizon of lights and the images that start running through your head of Hollywood and all the dreams that you have. To many, the speaker in Hotel California included, L.A. seems like a beautiful oasis on the edge of a dark, squalid desert. Hundreds of thousands of people have migrated to California in search of sunshine, beautiful women, money, fame. And most, though, find that this dream is a mirage. As the nightmare of the hotel explains, we are programmed to receive. And in many ways, California has been programmed to receive from its very inception. I mean, in 1848, before California even officially became American territory, gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill in the Sierra foothills, bringing droves of immigrants from other regions to the U.S., as well as Asia, Europe, Latin America. And the California dream was born. And it was a dream of instant wealth waiting to be claimed by anyone bold enough to take it and hundreds of thousands of people poured into the state, hoping and expecting to find a fortune in the gold fields. Most of them never found it. And the easy placer gold, you know, was soon panned out. It didn't take long for huge industrial mining operations to take over. And within a few years, most individual miners were reduced from independent treasure seekers to dependent wage laborers. So in some sense, a kind of false hope was written into the fabric of California from its very inception. So the point of the song, this is just what the Eagles found in California more than a century later. Despite their inextricable connection to the, to the state of California, no member of the Eagles was originally from there. Henley was from Texas. Fry was a rocker from Detroit. Uh, they both came to L.A. in 1970 to pursue musical careers, and then together they formed the Eagles in 71, along with Bernie Ledden and Randy Meisner, all four had toured as members of Linda Ronstadt's band. Linda Ronstadt's band. And, and the Eagles, they, you know, give them credit. They're not saying that the American dream cannot be realized. Um, I mean, certainly they, they, they realized it. You know, they came to California and they went on to become one of the best-selling bands in history. Um, in fact, the music they constructed was intended as a soothing antidote to the turmoil of the 60s. And it was a sound that appealed to American listeners of all stripes. Because between 75 and 79, the Eagles released four consecutive number one albums. One of these nights, their greatest hits, 1971 to 75, Hotel California in the long run. And their greatest hits still remains the best-selling album of all time in America. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is still the best-selling album of all time. So with all this money and success, the Eagles soon found that they had become prisoners of their own device. Interesting. 
Fame, excessive partying, drug use took its toll on the band. And according to Fry, he says, he, he said, listen, we weren't the Osmonds, but <laughs> we weren't the Rolling Stones either. He said that they, the band fell somewhere south of the Stones. And he said we were young and it was the lifestyle then. So according to, you know, the band, the song just simply chronicles the culture of excess, wealth, decadence, and self-destruction in the Southern California cultural milieu of the mid-1970s. Um, in a 2007 interview with 60 Minutes, Don Henley described Hotel California as a song about the dark underbelly of the American dream and about excess in America, which is something he said the band knew a lot about. So again, they're, they're not trying to argue that the American dream is a sham because they themselves are living examples of the American dream. But basically, the Eagles are simply criticizing the culture of excess surrounding the rich and famous in L.A., a culture that they found themselves part of and could not escape. So as it turns out, the old adage is true. You know, more money, more problems. So I like that version much better than the Satanic Temple cult. Yeah, but that, that's all the song was about. <laughs> well, and it fits on the through line of Henley, right? Because mm-hmm. Hotel California, then you have, you know, dirty, something like Dirty Laundry and Boys of Summer, yep. and then Into the Innocence. So he really did kind of have this idea of yeah. the American dream and what it should that's be. All it, that's all it is. And Which, you know, here's the thing, it makes perfect sense now to me, but I was a little disappointed. No. <laughs> I, I had to admit, I was a little, because I was expecting, okay, well, you know, what is this song about? And then it, it's about the band, you know, finding out that having more money creates more problems. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like... But much more artfully stated. Oh, well, yes. But I was like, damn, because Charles Manson would have made a much better story. <laughs> you know? You didn't but, even mention, I think, the best part of the song. What's that? Don Felder and Joe Walsh's dual guitar oh, the, solo. Oh, oh, hell yes. And the, they, they, they um, filmed, you know, live performances to promote the album at the time, so, which is where we get the video for Hotel California, which is just a live performance. And the two of them just feed off of each other. It's freaking incredible. Yep. No, I agree. So anyway, that that's, I, I had two that I knew were going to run long, American Pie and Hotel California, but... Hotel California, I did. I was sure it was about a cult my entire childhood, and I knew people that said it was devil worship, and I knew people, you know, Satanism. I knew people that argued that everything. I mean, it. there are probably as many urban myths about Hotel California in its entirety as there are about Phil Collins and his drowning man, quite frankly. Now, so. I will say there, there could be some truth uh, to, you know, there was an interest in the occult at the time. Stevie Nicks has been... You know, people. Oh, she, she's Wiccan. Yeah. And it's like anyone says, they, they exaggerate anything. But yes, you have Stevie Nicks, and then she dated Don Hanley at the time. So I'm sure there were elements of imagery from the occult in here, you know. And maybe Anthony LaVey's photograph is in the bucket of champagne, like my youth pastor once said. But uh, clearly, this was not a record to try to lure people into some type of an occult situation. No. Like you said, they were making a statement about, about them. Yep. yep. That's all yep. it was. Very good. Very good. All right, I guess that uh, the last pick, right? Does that mine? Or you have one more after this? Right? I have one more. I have one more yeah. Okay, my last pick. Okay, so you know, what of my entire list, what do I think is the ultimate opening song? Well, I kind of started with one, and I kind of end with one. So, where the streets have no name would definitely be one that I would choose. But behind the lines by Genesis mm. uh, would be another one that I'm not sure which I would put first. Uh, you, you have Duke, which again is kind of a concept album in the way that um, they written a suite of songs uh, with this character Duke. And, um, you know, there's Duke Travels, Duke's End, um, Behind the Lines, all these songs that eventually were broken up 
and added to the album and interdispersed between these um, songs um, were more popular radio-friendly hits like Turn It On Again and Misunderstanding. And I think what you mentioned earlier is what happened here. Um, Phil Collins and starting to write these popular songs, Genesis has some commercial success with songs like Follow You, Follow Me and, and some other songs up to this point. And I think they realized, you know, we might want to go a little more pop uh, in the direction. So this album, to me, is the perfect hybrid between where they'd come from as a progressive band and where they were headed as a pop band. And Duke was one of those albums I picked up when I, when I got into Genesis. Um, of course, I had the self-titled Genesis album, then I bought Invisible Touch, and I had Abacab. And then I'm like, you know what? I want to start exploring old Genesis. Now, for whatever reason, in my mind, Duke was old Genesis, right? <laughs> it wasn't Selling England by the Pound or Nursery Crime or any of those. Right. And so I picked up Duke just on a whim. I, I mean, I, I knew the song Misunderstanding. That was the only song that I knew. And it was one of the earliest versions of a concept album that I remember. Again, I kind of talked about this with Muse. Nobody ever walked me through Genesis. I didn't have an older friend or an older brother or somebody that kind of got me into it and told me about it. I didn't read a lot of articles. My exploration of Genesis was purely from my vantage point, which was kind of cool because I had no expectations. I had no, no way to put this into some of their larger context. And so Duke, for me, was, was really an album that I just discovered on my own, purchased on my own, just decided to give it a chance. And going through it was just bowed over by this opening song. Like, I'm like, what is going on here? Like, this this is not what I expected to hear from Genesis because I knew songs like That's All, right? And, you know, Mama is a little bit progressive, but, but this just bowled me over. And the fact that it just kind of, you know, as, as behind the lines finishes and it goes into um, the next song and they all kind of creep into each other, it all kind of worked. The only one that felt kind of out of place was Misunderstanding. It, it felt like it may be Turn It On Again a little bit, although Turn It On Again, I believe, is the first song of Side B, so there's a natural break there. But as a concept album, it worked for me. I had no idea what it meant. I had no idea what it was about. Uh, you know, I'm more musical than lyric, lyrical, but I just loved the way and, and it bookends so behind the line starts Duke 
Uh, and then it ends with the reprise called Duke's, Duke's End. And so it all kind of wraps around together. So had that being said, um, you know, not only is it a perfect song to, to start the record, but it, it, it's, it opened their last tour. So we both mentioned, we, I don't think we went together. but we, no, both, we didn't. We, yeah. we both went to, um, that happens sometimes. Like you'll buy tickets or a buddy of mine will buy tickets and then we'll ask each other and we're like, oh, we already have tickets. But yeah. the Lost Domino Tour, which has, has since concluded, um, this is the song that they open yeah. the tour with. And I thought, wow, that is just perfect. And that's why I had it included here because I discovered it on my own with no validation from anybody else. But now to see that Genesis also agrees that it's a great opening song, so much so that they open all of their shows for the, the last tour with this song is perfect. Um, yeah, I just I can't say I, I can't describe the song. Uh, I can say that there's two versions of the song. However, uh, you mentioned Phil Collins solo on his second solo LP, "Hold On, Must Be Going." He takes this song and he does a kind of funk version of it. And that sounds really weird. But what had happened was apparently in the studio when they were recording behind the lines, um, they, they rolled the tape back, but they rolled it back at twice the speed by accident. Hmm. And Phil heard it in double speed and goes, oh my gosh, that's a completely different song. So they continued with the one they had recorded for Duke, but he never forgot that. And so he took that song, sped it up tempo-wise, added some horns and kind of like I say, funk, almost jazzy funk type feel to it. It's the same lyrics, it's the same melody, and it's a completely different song. And so definitely going to put that one on the mention songs list. And that is it. That is all I have. Very cool. Yeah, I am. Um, oh, Duke, great album. Um, probably, well, I, I'd say it's it's between that and Abacab. I don't know which one I would hail as my favorite. I don't know early. I know The Land Lies Down on Broadway. That's the only Gabriel-led Genesis I really know. Um, and even, uh, what is it? And then there were three, I think, is well, the, the trick, one that follows. Trick after. of the Tale is the one, if you want to get into a early Phil Collins Genesis, that album is just fabulous top to bottom. I have it on vinyl, actually, over there. Uh, trick of the Tale is great. And then if you want to go old Genesis, some of the earlier stuff, is they're kind of finding their way. Um, I would hit Nursery Crime or um, Selling England by the Pound. Uh, if you were to take those three records, that would give you a really good feel for early Genesis. And if you like that, then I would say get into some of the other stuff as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I am, um, I, I don't know, I'm just, I, I'm, you know, yes aside, which we talked about last week, I, I'm just, I've never been into prog, right. you know, r really heavy into prog, so I don't know. In fact, here's what I would do. One record. If I have to pick one record, there's a there's a live album called Seconds Out that is basically all of early Genesis material, but Phil Collins has taken over. So I believe it was during the tour of Trick of the Tale, and so there's a lot of songs from that, but then there's a lot of the early Genesis, but Phil is is um, as lead because it's it's live. And so it's a great way for people that are used to the Phil Collins Genesis to kind of ease their way into some of the earlier, more progressive stuff because it just sounds like Phil Collins doing progressive, right? And then if you really like that stuff, which that, that is the album that got me into old Genesis, then when you go back and you listen to the Peter Gabriel stuff, you know, it all makes sense. Hmm, okay. Yeah, so Seconds Out, I highly recommend it. If you're trying to get into old Genesis, start with Seconds Out. If you like that, go with the three albums I mentioned. Okay, I'll have to do that. Um, okay, well, this is the last of my 
three songs that uh, we've previously used. Um, and again, no regrets using it a second time because to me, this, I feel, is the greatest opener in rock music. Okay, all right. I, I think. Um, and so you end with the best opener. I end, yeah, yeah, I end it with the best. Um, again, in my opinion, and I know there are a lot of haters out there, which I've never fully understood. Um, I, I, I see on social media especially, there's a lot of hate for you 2 There's a lot of hate for um, a, a number of artists that you and I revere. But there's also, there are so many people that just really do not like Bruce Springsteen. I don't find that my experience. I found that the millennial, especially millennial musicians, have rediscovered or really? discovered Springsteen and, and, and hail him as, you know, a huh. rock god. I, like, I'll go on Reddit and there'll, there'll be a conversation of who's the most overrated musician. And man, I see Springsteen all the way. Well, down because the list. those are the Ben Paynes of the world. And Ben, if you're listening, I don't think that you are. <laughs> uh, and, and I like Ben a lot. And Ben's a very accomplished musician and songwriter. He's a great guy. Um, we went to school with him. Uh, but Ben, I, I bring up Ben and use him as an example because he was the come from the crowd, a music snob, and I say that because I am a music snob as well. Um, who only knew Springsteen from his background as, as simply the hit maker of Born in the USA. Born in the USA. And the over-patriotic 80s and, and kind of that thing. And I remember doing my, my research paper for Mrs. Neal's class on, his, um, on Springsteen, where I got into all the old stuff. And, you know, and, and he read that, and to his credit, he's like, I, I, had, I had no idea. And so he went back and he listened to Born to Run. He went back and listened to the, um, uh, Asbury Park and... and um, um, Darkness in the Town, and he came back about a week later and said, "Yeah, no, yeah, this guy's the real deal." And so I think if there is that backlash, it's for people that just don't know the whole catalog. They know Born to Run, they know Born in the USA, they know Dance in the Dark, and that's about it. Hmm. And I suppose if those were the only three songs, and then people were telling you this is the greatest rock god of all time, you might say he's a little overrated too. But I defy anybody to go back and listen to those early records and tell me. That he's overrated. No, I don't. I, I don't I have to agree. convince you. I'm no, con- yeah, I'm I, convincing, convincing audience members that may be saying the same. Yeah, thing. Um, but it, it just—I've never understood. Like Zabe, by the way, hi Zabe. <laughs> <laughs> I've never understood the backlash. I, to me, Springsteen is—I well, I wouldn't have saved the best for last if I didn't believe that he correct yes. is. You know, and best. I know where you're going with this, and this is my favorite, probably my favorite song of all time. Yeah, so. I, to me, there's no greater opener in, in the history of rock music, and it's from 1975. It's on Born to Run. I am talking, of course, about Thunder Road.
Thunder Road, you know, here's the thing. It's not a song that you just listen to. It, it's one you watch. Yes. It's a sonic piece of cinema, you know, that the budding songwriter produced, wrote, and directed to screen in the theater of your imagination. A song with no chorus, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it, it is. <laughs> it's unconventional. It's There's very unconventional. No chorus. Yeah. Hell, it, the song even takes its name from a 1958 Arthur Ripley crime drama, Thunder Road, mm-hmm. a drive-in vehicle for Robert Mitchum. And Thunder Road is like the opening action scene. It sets the pace for what is to be an amazing adventure. As a writer and rock and roll visionary, Springsteen would define himself through a sprawling 40-year career of working-class anthems, sock-hop-ready rave-ups, emotionally devastating ballads, blood-on-sleeve rockers, and soul-bearing love songs, resulting in a rich canon uh, with insights into the human condition and the American experience from the personal to the political. But Born to Run... His 1975 landmark third LP is still very much a signature record. It it freed the young songwriter of the next Dylan claims that critics hung as an albatross on his freshman and sophomore efforts, and it established him as a singular entity, an outright master of rich lyrical imagery with a voice all his own. And, And the record, what I love about Springsteen, this record, as big as it was, did not serve as a template for future successes. Because Darkness on the Edge of Town, The River, The Blockbuster, Born in the USA, each album sounds entirely different from what comes before. Because a lot of artists, when they hit gold, they try to repeat that process. Yeah, I mentioned that earlier, right? You say, you know, you keep in your box commercially. Exactly. But instead, you know, Born to Run is the beginning of what Springsteen often calls a long conversation with his audience. And it's a conversation that he could have started with his anthem par excellence Born to Run. But, you know, he decided instead to open with a very different feel. Now, he's not adverse to opening with... You and know, that would have been a hell of an opener, by the way. It would have. <laughs> and, Born to Run. And, you know, he's not adverse to opening with The Rocker. I mean, Badlands opens Darkness, mm-hmm. you know. So, I mean, he's, he's done that and, and many times. Um, and then Born to USA, of course, you have the title track, which I know is probably your least favorite song. It is my least song. favorite song. But I mean, he, he has opened with rockers. But here, he takes a more inductive approach. He opts for Thunder Road, which is a song crafted as a preamble, or as he called it, an invitation to a long playing narrative about small town kids dreaming of what lies beyond the horizon as the sun goes down on a sweaty summer night. And as the needle falls on the LP's A-side, simultaneous tension and release slowly focuses on the foreground. Because swelling from the groove, the dreamy tickle of, a, of pianist Roy Bitton's ivories chime in, and they contrast to the yearning howl of a harmonica that sounds like the creak of a screen door, slamming in slow motion. Um, and as the tempo quickens to a bouncy lilt, the harmonica exits scene, and we meet our nameless narrator and Mary, who for the time being suffices for his Juliet. She's not a beauty, but hey, she's all right. You know, and this is how Springsteen lets us know that for his characters, it's not love he's getting at, but romance. It's romance and companionship, which has to beat being alone. And romance that makes a promised land of anywhere two lanes can take them, you know, which has to be better than here, which is no place to grow old. That's pretty much the theme of the music that follows him on a 40 year journey. Um, I don't know. I to me, Thunder Road is just nothing. Nothing beats Thunder Road as an opening track. It's just one of those songs that, with the pictures that the words gave me, you know, upon first listening, it was just real immediate. 
you know, and I, I was hooked. And I don't know, it just, I had to include it a second time. I had, I had no choice. And, you know, Thunder Road, it even had a sequel, The Promise, that didn't happen. Uh, the song was originally intended for darkness, but it was scrapped until it eventually found its way into non-bootleg status when it was re-recorded and released as part of 1999's 18 Tracks Odds and Ends release. Um, right, right. But, yeah, I mean, it, it just... Whew. As an as as an opener, I, I, I don't think there's there's anything that beats it. I do want to call attention to one thing though, because we t- we've even talked about uh, maybe in the future doing an episode on misheard lyrics. Mm-hmm. Thunder Road has been the center of a debate. Are you going to talk about the sways? Yeah. Ways? Oh yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. just that was finally just uh, put it, to bed. Yeah, it was. Um, for well, since its release, Springsteen fans have debated whether Mary's dress sways or Mary's dress waves. Because it can wave in the wind. It's personification. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, according to longtime Springsteen collaborator John Landau, the word is sways. Landau has gone on record saying that that's the way he wrote it, and that's the way Bruce wrote it in his original notebooks. That's the way Bruce has sang it on Born to Run and in his thousands and thousands of shows since. And he said that's the way he sang it on Broadway. And, and Landau has said that any typos in official Bruce material will soon be corrected. And then, he, as, as a final, uh, you know, a final, um, you know, emphasis, he said, uh, by the way, dresses do not know how to wave. Right, 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 right. Um, but here's the problem. I mean, we know now. It's, it, right, Springsteen right. wants it to be sways and has always sang it that way. So I've been singing it wrong for years. Oh, so have I. I've always said waves. Right. I've always said waves. But Springsteen himself really hasn't done his part in clearing up the lyrics either. Uh, in November of last year, he finally attempted to settle the age-old question himself uh, when he graced The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. He, he decided to finally pin yep. down the issue. Yep. And he was asked by Fallon about the Thunder, Road's, uh, Thunder Road lyrics debate. Springsteen himself finally clarified. He said, Mary's dress sways. He said... Um, on Fallon, he said, this record is almost 50 years old. And he said, now 50 years ago, I was a sociopath. So I was <laughs> insane about every single detail that had anything to do with music. My album, my album cover, my lyrics. He said, I went over everything with a fine tooth comb so everything would be perfect and completely accurate. The lyrics to Thunder Road are in this album, Springsteen yep. said. Yep. Okay. And he said, what is in this album are the correct lyrics. So then Fallon handed Springsteen <laughs> the album. I love this moment. Have you seen it? That's yeah, I've, I've seen it, yeah. And reading through it, Springsteen carefully and teasingly revealed that the correct uh, lyrics are um, sways. He said, I've been singing sways for 50 years. But it turned out that the correct Thunder Road lyrics in the album say the screen door slams Mary's dress Waves. Which is why I always thought that. Yeah, which is why I've because been saying that. Because I had that the way. LP and I had the yeah, lyric I, insert. Same. So Fallon was visibly shocked by the revelation, and Springsteen was too. Yes. Yeah, I think he puts his reading glasses on, yeah. he looks down, and he goes, it's wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, um, yeah, Springsteen said uh, on record that he was so confident about uh, it being Sways, and he just simply, like like Dave just said, he, he looks at Fallon and says, lyrics are wrong. Yeah, yeah. Because it wasn't. His handwritten notes we've since yeah, seen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Fallon, of course, confessed jokingly, I'm more confused now than I was when I asked, <laughs> you know. Um, 
But yeah, Thunder Road, that is my, my number 12 and the last of my three repeated songs. So that ends our 24 selections for this mixtape. What a great way to end it. Nice. Now we have to come up with an order. Yes, we do. As we discussed in the top of the last half, that we might have a toll order to fill if we have to figure out what the greatest opener is. Of course, we're going to take into context the collection of songs we have and what works with what. But uh, Right. But we will be right back after this. Yes, sir. All right, so we have our order. Uh, I still a lot of pressure, Dave. I, I don't know that what we've come up with actually is the greatest opener. Um, I, I I just said moments earlier that I think Thunder Road is, and that's not how we're opening. <laughs> so, um, but musically, this uh, transitions very nicely. So this is what we're going to do. Um, you know whether we did it correctly or not, uh, that remains to be seen. But this is the order that we have come up with. We begin with Funeral for a Friend, Love Lies Bleeding by Elton John. Yep. From there, we go into In Between Days by The Cure, Where the Streets Have No Name by U2, followed by Bat Out of Hell by Meatloaf, Into Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses, Bliss Krieg Bop by The Ramones, Uprising by Muse, Into the Queen is Dead by the Smiths, followed by Baba O'Reilly by the Who, Behind the Lines by Genesis, and we end side A with Roundabout by Yes. I think you're right, Alan, and this may be the greatest collection of music we've ever put on a mixtape ever. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I would listen to this anytime. I, this this may be my go-to as far as the mixtapes we've created, when I'm especially when I'm just out driving, you know? Definitely. All right, so side B, we begin with In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. That goes into The End of the Innocence by Don Henley, followed by Space Oddity by David Bowie. Band on the Run by Wings, followed by We Will Rock You, We Are the Champions by Queen. Followed by Do It Again by Steely Dan. Secondhand News by Fleetwood Mac. Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan, followed by Box of Rain by The Grateful Dead. American Pie by Don McLean, followed by Hotel California by the Eagles, and we end our mixtape with Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen. Wow, that is... Maybe we should just stop while we're ahead. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I don't know that the music gets much better than this. That's it, good. It's, That's good. It is phenomenal. Um, now, here's my... And by the way, this would not fit on a mixtape. <laughs> no. We've, we've never actually played by right. those rules, but, you know... I, the longest you could be purchase, a double mixtape. Yeah, the longest you could purchase was 120 minutes, and our mixtape is two hours 18. Um, and this episode has passed the two hour mark as well. Quite we, a bit. Ago, we haven't so. done that in a long time. <laughs> well, hopefully it was worth it, and they stuck with us. We'll we'll find out. We need a name. What do we name in the mixtape? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I didn't think about that. What works? Well, sometimes we go with the title. Is there anything title that works? Um, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, well, it's our season four opener. What about Do It Again? That makes perfect sense. that work? I love it. Okay. Do It Again. We'll, we'll pull from Steely Dan for this one. Nice. So. All right. Well, that concludes our first two-part episode. We will be back in two weeks. And our next episode is 1973. 50 years. Yep. 
We are going to celebrate the songs that turned 50 this year, as did I. 1973 is my birth year. You were 72. Well, November, end of November of 72. My wife says I'm basically a 73-er. Yeah, you are. Yeah. But I will claim 72 because it makes me older than all my friends. So. There, there you go. And you, you are the <laughs> oldest of, of yes. our group. Um, yeah, I'm 73. Number one song, The Week I Was Born, I know this for a fact, was You Are the Sunshine of My Life mm, great song. by Stevie Wonder. That was the number one song. Songs from the Key of Life. That, yeah. That album. Oh, yeah. That was the number one song in the country the, the week I was born, and I am not including it in my list. <laughs> so, not because I don't love it. I love the song. Right. I'm just not including well, it. Well, I think I'm including one from that record. No, I, actually, it's from the record before that, I think, is what I chose. Okay. Yeah, but, yeah. But it's, there is a Stevie Wonder on my list. Yeah. Stevie released two albums in 73. He, it was a big year for him. Yeah. I mean, he had Superstition. Yeah, it's from the album that came um, He had Higher Ground. He had, he had a number of yep. big hits. Yeah, yeah. You um, just mentioned one of them, so. Oh, yeah? One of those? Yeah. Um, yeah, so 73, we will be celebrating the songs that turned 50 this year. That is our next uh, two-part episode. So we hope that you will return with us in two weeks when we come back for another round of mixtape curation. Yep, that's all for this week. And we'll see you in two weeks. Hot, funk, cool, punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. And we will see you on the flip side. Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out If you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker Turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time
Piled by friends, amateur DJing With no concern for what format's playing It was more about what the songs were saying Mixtape Got some Merle Haggard and old George Jones Someone yelling in the background I thought I heard a phone But it's nice when you're all alone To have a mixtape Line in, line out If you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker Turn the volume to nine There's an accidental slice Of 